so you'd hear all these kind of stories and you'd hear kind of their aspirations for the future you'd hear them tell stories about where they come from what it used to be like um it, they would avoid the taliban as a conversation for the reasons i've discussed already because they are one and the same and it's kind of yeah when and often they would come up with the question of what do we do when you leave um you know who do we look to then i can't look to the government um and that was that was the awkward conversation and you kind of avoided that so you just tried to keep it and um, friendly and personable but ultimately all they wanted like anything was just to have a you know a future for the children and security safety and a source of a source of income which by the way was mostly poppy <laughs> in our area mm. so yeah that was the other thing Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Paths, the podcast about people who have lived unusual lives marked by dramatic change or a sense of living different lives simultaneously. You just heard a little snippet of today's guest, Connor O'Shea. Connor grew up in Dublin, Ireland, and after studying business, economics and social studies in Trinity College Dublin, he went to Sandhurst to train as an officer in the British Army. He served in Helmand Province, Afghanistan in the winter of 2012-2013 a lieutenant and police advisory commander, and later rose to the rank of captain as he travelled the world conducting training exercises as a forward air controller. He left the army in 2017, and after a tricky couple of years figuring out what he wanted to do and an MBA in Edinburgh, he has arrived in his current role as vendor operations manager at Google, running a team of about 500 people around the world who make sure the advertising mechanisms and metrics of Google Partners' websites are working as they should. Hopefully I've described that accurately. And as you might expect from a former military captain in early 2020, he took a key role in preparing his corner of Google for the move to working from home, which happened just as he started his job. We delve into a lot of fascinating subjects in this interview with particular focus on Connor's time in Afghanistan. When so much of what we hear about the events unfolding there are filtered through the media, it was a privilege for me to have a conversation with someone who'd seen it with their own eyes. Obviously, no one perspective can be definitive, and the most important perspectives would have to be those of Afghan people themselves. But nevertheless, I really enjoyed hearing Connor's very honest take on what he saw and experienced. As ever, I will include a guide to the topics we talk about in the episode description for anyone with a burning desire to hear a particular part. Before we get to the interview, a little bit of housekeeping. Any keen listeners to the podcast will have noticed recently that the gaps between episodes has grown longer than the usual two weeks I started out with. I must confess this is largely because with things opening up here in the UK, I wanted to enjoy the summer as much as possible and so I've had less time to put into the podcast. Another factor is that I have other creative projects I want to spend time on and a podcast like this is a surprisingly time-consuming thing. Having said that, I absolutely love making this thing and have no intention of stopping. So my plan is to continue with the more spontaneous release of episodes as and when I find people I think make fascinating guests. I also think this will help maintain quality control as when I can't find someone I think is really interesting, I just won't release an episode. I would welcome any feedback on the podcast or on this new plan. You can reach me on patspodcastpeople at gmail.com. You can use the same email to reach out if you have an unusual life story or know someone who does and think it would be a good fit for the podcast. Huge thanks to Dan Bergen for putting me in touch with Connor. Okay, enough preamble. Over to Connor. Enjoy. We uh, have a good mutual friend in common, Dan Bergen. Uh, so I've met you like a bunch of times over the years, but we haven't seen each other for a few years now. Um, mm-hmm. But I've but I've always been fascinated by your story. Um, and I, I'm very conscious that there's so much ground to cover 
that I feel like we should probably kind of fast forward a little bit in the beginning because um, correct me if I'm wrong, kind of up until the point that you decided to to go off and uh, train to be an officer in the British Army, your life had been following a pretty kind of normal path for want of a better word uh, you know you you grew up in dublin uh you went to belvedere college you went to trinity and studied uh, business economics and social studies um that's what the best stands for right um yeah that's the one simply yeah. the best that's Sim- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lovable bunch <laughs> and uh yes. and then uh and then you went to japan after university for a year and it's at that point i would love to begin because you then you you you're not convinced you want to go into the corporate world uh, you were telling me on the phone the other day that you you know you couldn't relate to people who are like excited to go and become an accountant in kpmg mm. or whatever and mm-hmm. you decided to go um and train in sandhurst as an officer in the british army um which yeah right from the get-go is is a remarkable uh, kind of moment because um well for one thing i want to ask you um as uh, I'm sure you're asked this a lot, but but as an Irish guy, what did that um, decision entail for you? What was the kind of thought process, and and how did you come to that? Yeah, it's 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 one of the there's many interesting questions I get around, but that's that's obviously a kind of a relatively big one, and it's quite a meaningful question. And rest rest assured, it was not one that was taken lightly, and not one that I did on a whim. Required a lot of soul searching and sanity checking and questioning of myself, I suppose you could say. When I think back to it at the time, um, and I suppose like any decision, you you reach a justification for something in your head, um, and you say like, "Yeah, I'm doing it for X, Y, and B reasons, and therefore this makes sense, even though there is A, B, C reasons why I shouldn't be doing it." But yeah, it was it was an interesting one. I suppose there was there was two elements to it really. Um, the first was the opportunity surrounding it, which was for me. Um, obviously, being Irish, the other option would be quite obvious to go join the Irish Defence Forces, which, um, if I recall at the time, there was a hiring freeze um, for officers. I don't think there was like a two-year gap, I recall, when they didn't even take on any officer cadets um, in, down in the Kapura. Um, not to mention it was incredibly hard to get into that. I believe there was only intakes of maybe 40 or 50. I could be wrong. But I remember it being you know, almost impossible to get into the Irish Army at the time. Um, I suppose that was one kind of reason why the Irish Defence Forces was out. The second was, like I said, the opportunity around um, what you would actually do when you were in it. Um, and I suppose for me, like many people, I mean, I'm 34 now, and at the time I was, you know, obviously 17, 18, and we've been growing up since, you know, since 9-11 with Iraq and Afghan on the news and a million and one documentaries and watching Ross Kemp in Afghanistan and reading several million books. It was just in the media all the time. It was kind of without being too cliche you could say it was our generational war as it were it was what was in the media what was there all the time and it captured my imagination because it was it was ex- whatever about the strategic reasons for being there and whatnot it was the the people element that really captured me it was all the stories of you know challenge and adversity and leadership and you know working your way through problems and working your, your people's way through dramatic scenarios and situations and coming back and being better people for it in most instances um, so all of that kind of appealed to me, the, the actual adventure, the challenge, the, the going and doing something different and kind of developing myself as a person and doing something that was seems to me more exciting and challenging than just going into the quote-unquote office job at the time. And I kind of said to myself, I'll, I'll have time for that in my 30s and my 40s. But right now, while I've cartilage in my knees, I'd love to go run around and have adventures. And I think that was a big 
aspect for me. Um, but going back to kind of the original question of as an Irish person specifically joining the British Army, um, that was a it was a challenge which was made a little easier by the fact I had a family connection, as I think most people in Ireland do when you go back enough generations, given you know it wasn't that long ago when we were forced into being in the British Army, whether you wanted to be or not. Um, but yeah, I had kind of a grand uncle who fought in, he could have his own TV series, as I mentioned before. Um, he fought in North Africa against Rommel. He was a tank platoon sergeant and his whole platoon got killed and he was the only survivor. He got sent to Yugoslavia to be in a prisoner of war camp, did the whole great escape and had several escape attempts and eventually got out, went back to London, um, set up some pubs and married a Russian ballerina. He was a, a pretty dramatic character and one that really rubbed off of me as, you know, when I was a teenager growing up and went to visit him in London or he was in Dublin and I saw him and I was like, wow, I want to be you. I didn't look at my lawyer or doctor uncles and kind of think, wow, I want to be you. It was this guy who captured my imagination with his kind of passion, his enthusiasm and his, his some people would call it arrogant and a bit weird. I would call it ostentatious and a character, <laughs> but mm. he was certainly kind of a loud, interesting person. And to me, that excited me. I'm hearing his stories and hearing what he'd done. And I think just having this fearless attitude and not being an idiot, but, but just being, you know, if you saw a risk, he would, you know, his risk mitigation was a lot higher than any of the rest of us. He would just go and do something. Um, and I really admired that. I love that. Um, and I think that and other family members kind of from great grandparents back, um, there was connections. So it wasn't like completely out of the blue that I kind of took an interest in this. Um, I know from Trinity, I was rowing with some um, guys over from England, um, two or three lads who went to Eton and they come across the Trinity and they were doing the rowing. And then they were all going off to join, go to Santos to be officers themselves. I heard their stories of going off to, oh, we're going to go to Baghdad and we're going to go to, you know, Helmand province and we're going to go, you know, help the Afghans and we're going to go lead men in battle and blah, blah, blah. And all that lit up my eyes far more than going and being on a professional services internship with, you know, PwC, um, to be quite honest. And I think at the time, like many people in university, you people were, uh, struggling to know what to do with themselves and that just captured my imagination they captured my my passion and i think it was very much a decision driven by that sounds fun and exciting i want to go do that um and to be quite honest the justification for it being britain and not ireland was and this is very true for my entire time in it i did nothing to do with ireland when i was in it you know i far from one occasion which i could probably talk about later the one the one incident where being Irish in the British Army was a bit uncomfortable. There was one incident in particular. But um, for the vast part, I was focused on Afghanistan. And if I wasn't focused on Afghanistan, I was focused on the Russians. Um, so, you know, Northern right. Ireland never came into it, apart from being a, um, you know, a vignette and a lesson learned that would always get brought up of how not to do hearts and minds, um, which was good mm -hmm. to see that they were learning from their mistakes in the past. <laughs> um, yeah. So, funnily enough, I was always a... Uh, brought in as a quote-unquote expert speaker because I was Irish and therefore I must know everything about Northern Ireland. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it was it was interesting. But I suppose yeah, that was the the key thing for me. It was whether I could have joined Germany, Italy, Canada. It didn't matter. It was because yeah, nothing we were doing was European focused. It was all this international effort in the Middle East and and Russia was the other alternative. And if you want to get very stretchy, it was China as well and international national strategic context was something that really interested me and you know that's what i wanted to be part of it was nothing to do with ireland and it was from my justification that was kind of part of it if that made sense i suppose yeah and you talked about um your relative and his fearlessness because i'm sure another question that anybody in who's gone to a, to an actual war zone 
is often asked is is about your levels of fear because you know uh you were whatever like 22 or so you're you're not like some totally naive kid um or not at least you mm. know not not completely when we're 22 and um yeah <laughs> you know I, did it did it not was there no fear in terms of i could i could be killed or wounded over there did that cross your mind or what was your relationship to that yeah i, I suppose i mean it's it's hard to look back on it now i would say no but i think at the time um at, at the time my biggest fear honestly as a young platoon commander was that i had you know 30 40 guys who were you know if i fucked up one of them would get injured or die so that was my main fear that i didn't want to mess up and um, it wasn't necessarily about my own I wasn't particularly bothered about the mortality of that. I was kind of like, you know, whatever happens, happens. But I was more like, I don't want to have something on my mind for the rest of my life where I should have done that or we could have done that and I didn't because I was cutting corners or we didn't consider something or it was a stupid decision or, you know, that was my fear, um, I think, going over. And, yeah, and I think the, <laughs> I remember specifically, I'm actually watching the news recently, gave me a bit of a flashback to it was. I remember landing into Bastion, um, uh, Bastion, which was the main um, UK airbase in Helmand Province, which you may, may or may not have heard of on the news, and God yeah, knows course, what's yeah. happening there now. But um, but I remember flying in at night time in the C-17, and they do the tactical descent down before you land and all that. And I remember the lights going off in the plane, and me sitting with like all the lads, and I had that little moment describing what I was just talking about there around, oh shit, it's up to me now. <laughs> um, mm. And I was like, you know, there's no one, there's no you know training academy who'll be marking me on assessing me. There'll be no you know, after events review, where they're like, oh, you can learn from that lesson and move on. And all that kind of training was done. And um, now it was just, you're on your own. No one's going to be checking up on you. You just have to go do the job. And, you know, and if you mess up, people will back you up and they'll assume you did the right thing and everything you should have done at the time, unless you've been grossly incompetent, but that's a rarity. Um, people always get the benefits of the doubt. But yeah, that was my main fear. I was just, I didn't want to mess up and, you know, do something like that that I kind of regret or that people will blame me for. And that was, that was my biggest fear by a long way. Um, we were lucky as well that we didn't have that many. Um, I mean, some of the Afghans we were working with, we had some pretty bad incidents with them um, and a few deaths. But those guys, just due to the nature how they operate. Um, but for our own team, we just won serious injury. One, one of our guys was a double amputee. But when that happened, it was um, that was like five meters away from me. When it happened, I was the closest guy to him. And oh, I suppose wow. I remember afterwards when I reflect on that, there was an element of oh crap if i'd have ran an extra two steps i would have stood in that and he he stood in it instead so when i looked back on that there was that but then there was something everyone considered at the time when you were there that's why everyone looks at the ground where you're stepping what's behind that wall blah 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 and there's also then the element of it's such a cliche but it's the element of you train for it so therefore you're ready for it it'd be terrifying if you didn't know what to do but we knew what to do so it was very much a, and that's how the military operates and how, how it kind of prepares people for that. You are, you're waiting for that to happen. And then when it does happen, you know exactly what to do. So there's no shock, as it were. Um, well, well yeah, I, 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 I want to ask you all uh, about the training. Um, but just before we go, because I, I want to hear about your time at Sanders, but just in terms of that moment, mm. uh, I gather um, your, uh, what would you, your soldier, I don't know what, how you'd refer to him. Um, he, he stood on a landmine, did he? And, or was it an IED or something? And, and that, you say, yeah, you, so you... that was, um, yeah, yeah. So that was, a yeah. So what, what would often happen was we'd get shot at from a distance. And, um, one of the reasons they would shoot at you from a distance, it was just harassing fire. It wasn't actually, it wasn't that threatening. 
um, as it were, you know, from 200 or 300 meters away. If you got caught, it was unlucky. Um, but what they would do is they would deliberately do that on kind of a top of a little hill, um, whereby you obviously naturally want to take cover behind the hill. Um, so what they would do is they would plant IEDs, explosives, like a man or kind of homemade mines, as it were. Um, you know that when you stood on it, it would go off. Um, they would hide those in the positions where they would guess we would take cover. So whenever, so it meant that anytime you got shot out, you go, oh no, I'm getting shot out. The first thing you'd look at to take cover behind, you would have to stop yourself and go, no, not behind that, and you'd have to run to something else. So, right. <laughs> so and that's how that scenario happened. Actually, he ran into a bit of cover just behind me, and that's where they had put one. So yeah, that was that was an unpleasant scenario. Funnily enough, as soon as the thing went off, he stopped firing and left because they had achieved what they wanted to do. So yeah, there was a lot of little crafty scenarios like that where you had to be. Re- it was all mind games. It wasn't just simply. Um, <laughs> you know, we we would often quote, "We wish it was more conventional warfare, where it was just there's an obvious bad guy, let's go get him." Whereas this was a lot more. Know four and five dimensions. You have to be thinking. You know what's what's the intent of this? What are they trying to achieve, and all the rest of it. So, yeah, that, that particular scenario. <laughs> and um, so you said, like, you know exactly what to do in that situation. I, I guess it's firstly about staying calm, and then about getting your your comrade um, medical treatment or getting him away out of danger or whatever. Yeah. So I mean, like, in that specific scenario, kind of whenever something like that happens, you kind of have a you have a, a blank check to essentially put any bit of firepower down in that direction that you want to get rid of them. So that's the first thing you do. You just maximize every bit of lead you can in a particular direction to kind of mitigate that threat, um, including helicopters and other things. So that's kind of, the, for me as the commander, that's the easy thing to do. It's like everyone shoot that way. <laughs> um, so, and then this was the second element is just casualty evacuation drills, which is something, you know, we practiced, you know, every day. It was just something that everyone knew what to do. Um, so obviously it's a bit different when you have a real person you're dealing with and God, yeah, if I recall on that particular incident that day we had the two two of my younger privates who were near me were the first guys to run over and start putting tourniquets and stuff uh, on the top of his leg etc um, but they were like quite panicky and kind of rabbits in headlights and they were actually dealing with it um, <laughs> so as you would imagine um, yeah. so that required a bit of it, what I, as a commander, you have to be really careful with those situations that you don't make someone look bad and you don't kind of throw someone out of a situation because they're they're flapping or panicking about something. Um, so yeah, I had to just make sure I grabbed my you know sergeant and made sure he got in to actually say you sort this out now kind of thing because um, he was the experienced head who dealt with that many times before. So he was able to get in and not take over, but just direct them specifically what they needed to do. At that point, you just need someone to kind of talk you through what you're doing um, and tell the guy who's screaming and shouting to just shut up because <laughs> he's not helping by screaming. <laughs> so, As in the, the wounded yeah, guy. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So at that point, he's just like, shut up, you're not helping by shouting. <laughs> so, yeah. But um, but yeah, it's, it, but that's the thing you kind of, it's, it's it's the kind of thing that when you it's only afterwards and you reflect on it but it's it's absolute cliche and i suppose it's a bit like sport in that way is that you just know what you're doing because you train for it all the time you don't think about it um it's only afterwards that you reflect on it um and geez even when i reflect on it i remember yes as the helicopter is flying away and you're kind of it's all calm again that's the weirdest moments because you're kind of thinking well what now um do we keep going do we go back what are we doing so (laughs) 
there's those little moments then which you don't expect and you don't really train for. And I suppose that's the weird little bit then when you get back to camp and you're expected to just go back into normal routine and you're going out again in the morning and the lads don't want to go out. And dealing with that human element of it is it was the weirdest bit, I'd say. Um, but yeah, there's lots obviously within that whole realm. It's a fascinating area of like psychology. But um, for me, it's all about kind of you train for something so much that when it happens, you don't even think about it. That's the kind of, and that's what the military is fundamentally. Uh, yeah, and I, I'm very keen to get on to the training, but ju- just the last thing on that, I, I'd just be curious. That guy, I assume, obviously that, if he was a double amputee, that ended his time in any kind of com- combat zone. But do you, mm. do you know do you know what became of him? Did he stay in the military in some regard, or is he, you know? Oh uh, yeah, so he's 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 that he left. Obviously, he was um, like he was. I think he was above the knee and one leg and below and the other. So which one good leg, one bad leg, as they say. For, right. Um, getting the, the the replacements, but he he actually went back to the the UK. He's from Sheffield, that particular guy. Um, and he he now runs a successful line of gyms. So and he's absolutely huge. <laughs> if you saw a photo <laughs> of him in his upper half, he looks like a bodybuilder. So he was really into that when he was younger. So um, so yeah, he kind of really went all in for that. And I suppose one thing that was it's a kind of a it's a silver lining from the whole scenario is that soldiers who get injured in Afghan they all had quite good financial payouts afterwards. Yeah. Um, I don't know exactly what his sum was, but like it was it was over a million. Um, so right. you know, it's enough money to help with the, um, you know, your your any amendments you need to make to your life and all the rest of it. But it's also gave him money to like start a business and buy the car he always wanted and you know get a new house and all the stuff. So like he they they put you in quite a good place as best you can like financially. Sure. Um, so it's not like he was left abandoned afterwards. And equally, to be fair to the military, they are excellent at you know keeping in touch with people always involving them in events you know you don't just get injured and you're forgotten about you know he's still actively involved in various groups and attends events and all the rest of it so which is really positive and that's one thing i'll absolutely say that the brits are really good for as i'm sure you see on the tv lot they seem to love talking about um you know wounded veterans and all the rest of it yeah it is for the last year in that scenario it's a fantastic support for them. so it's really good and it's nice to have seen that kind of personally but, yeah and uh you know you'd see from well both from real life but also from movies about like uh particularly the u.s and vietnam and stuff you get a sense it's not so so good in that regard and there's a lot of there's a lot of veterans in a very bad way and so it's good to hear Mm. at least um at least in britain these days they're doing right by those guys and hopefully it's getting better in the states but but let's uh go back to the training because i because i'm actually really fascinated by this you said about um like you train so much for stuff that you're ready for it uh and that makes me think that my question is you know is military training as elite as the kind of general population uh would think it is or uh you know is there an element of that is slightly overhyped is it as good as it kind of appears from the outside or give us your perspective on it in terms of what it what it the effect it has on the people who go through it so the 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 short answer to that is no, it's not elite. And the reason for that is it can't be. Because if you look at the, the a nation's strategy, such as when you look back at the Cold War and you look at West Germany and France and Belgium, the Netherlands and the UK and the Americans who were all manning the, the front line in West Germany in case the Russians came over, um, you know, the UK had nearly half a million troops um, in Germany alone sitting on the border waiting for the Germ- for the Russians to come. Um, the old adage was that they were expected to last 48 hours. 
Um, so that half a million troops were expected to fight and delay the Russians about you know two days. Mm. Um, and the Russians' goal was to make it to Antwerp to seize all the oil, um, which was that was the main store in Europe at the time. Um, their goal was to make it to Antwerp in six days. Um, and equally, at that point, they were if they hadn't reached Antwerp, it was a failure. Um, what does all that mean? It means that a professional army is there to save you for two days. That two days is where the reserve comes in. It's where this is now in Cold War scenario. It's a bit different today, but it's still the same concept whereby a professional army deals with professional things such as um, small scale UN missions and, um, you know, joining parts of counterinsurgency campaigns like Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, they're not national defense. In a national defense scenario whereby you know Russia is invading and you have two weeks to keep them out, um, that's a what you get into the total war scenario. Total war being where you know an entire country is is and its industrial machine is designed around you know getting rid of of someone who's invading essentially. Um, in that scenario, there is no professional army. There is someone who's had um, you know four weeks training and they're all of a sudden in charge of a platoon and the platoon has had two days training and they're all given a rifle and off they go. And if that sounds ridiculous, it's not because that's what World War Two was. Um, the guys who were fighting in, you know, the the Battle of the Bulge and um, you know the later stages of the of the first campaign into into sorry into to West Germany. Um, you know, most of those guys have been, had only had about four or five weeks of training because the professional guys who'd done all the training they were all dead by the time they hit Belgium, or at least anyone who'd survived was now in a senior leadership position because they lasted long enough. Um, and there's several great books. Platoon Commander, by the way, is one of the best books I've ever read, if anyone's interested. Um, it tells the story of the only member of a battalion who survived from D-Day to getting into Germany. By that point, he was, uh, I think he ended up as a brigadier, um, having started as a corporal. Um, so yeah, that's a hell of a promotion, but purely because he was the most experienced. So is it elite, the training? No, because if it is elite, that means average people can't do it. And if average people can't do it, it's not a reasonable thing to ask of people to do um so and when i when i say that i mean you know here's a rifle do what this person tells you to do and um, mm -hmm. people need to be able to grasp hold of that they need to be able to understand that in order to be able to fill those roles in times of crisis and in times of emergency that's the whole point of it um, which is what modern day reserves are designed to do the modern if you look in the uk and in france and germany and very much so in america um, and even china and russia have their own, own versions of it um, the reserve is what will actually fight the war. The professional army will be dead within a week, and the profess and the main bulk will be the reserves. The reserves will basically bring all the civilians in, tell them what to do, and organize them. Um, that's wow. the huge overarching strategy. In reality, it can be different, obviously, and I don't think we'll be in a total war scenario like that anytime soon. But that's that. You, that's you never know. <laughs> Well, you never know. You never know. So, but um, but that's but that's the point. And I suppose if you look at like where's the eliteness come into us? The eliteness comes into the the thinking behind us. You know, giving someone a rifle and you know basic level tactics aren't hard. I mean, it's arduous, it's physical, etc. And yes, it requires a degree of physical um, kind of strength to do. Um, but the real challenge is the the leadership aspect of it, the tactical planning. The you know that's where the skill comes in. That's where the experience comes in, and that's where the um, you know, having a level head under pressure and knowing your doctrine, knowing your enemy and all that good stuff. That's where the, the leadership element comes in. That's very much what Santos is where I went, um, which is the officer academy, because that's what essentially the officers do. Um, you know, you, you, you can learn to be a soldier, you know, a very good soldier in 12 or 13 weeks. You know, that's you'll have you'll have it down by that point. Um, and then it takes another best part of a year to get the other stuff, which is the hard bit. Um, 
And I suppose that's the bit that's challenging. And I suppose I wouldn't call it elite. It's certainly challenging, certainly within the realm of most people's comprehension. Um, but it is challenging because of the pressure element. And if there's one element where people fail, it's the pressure element. Because I've, I'm sure that you and any of your listeners as well, anyone who's ever been trying to make decisions under pressure or under challenge or in an environment where you're not comfortable, um, that can skew the way you think. And of course, the famous word that we would use for that is flapping, whereby someone is flapping their arms about because they're they don't know what to do and they're running around in circles and um, so right. yeah that's the that's the challenging bit and can you um kind of from your time training could you kind of zoom us into uh, a specific moment does anything come into your memory that you go that that was a moment of my training where they really helped bring me forward you know a leap that was a brilliant bit of training i got that that opened my mind to something new yeah yeah it's a really good question i can uh, i can think of a few examples there was kind of i would describe them as lightful moments where something clicked for me or where I, there was something i thought i couldn't do that i was in, ended up being able to do um i suppose one element that i found yeah there was yeah i can i'm, I'm thinking of one example now whereby it, i think it was up in galloway forest if you if you know where that is um the darkest bit of the UK, apparently, that huge bit of forest there, um, just a, um, above the Lake District um, in Scotland. Um, there's a huge training area up there, and it's it's horrible because it's just all mountains and woods, and your footing is awful, and yeah, terrible place, but great for training. Um, we were up there doing a two-week exercise during Santorist itself, um, and I had the, um, there's a thing called command rotation in your platoon, whereby people will rotate through certain um, appointments within the platoon structure um, so you might be the platoon commander for one day and you might be a corporal the next day and the day after that you're just a, a private and then the day after that you're the sergeant um, so it gets gets you into the spirit and understanding what every role does um, whilst at the same time one person in your cohort that's going through um, Santorist is, is in the command position and it's, it's known as the command appointment and it's the thing that everybody panics and worries about because you're the really the one that's being assessed um, right. and i had the notoriously difficult uh i got assigned the insertion on the first night um so you get dropped off by truck i think it was like 10 p.m and we had like 12 hours to move in and get set up in an overwatch for some ambush we were doing whatever it was um but it was classic scottish miserable sideways wind and rain and we were all carrying about 70 kilos and Everyone was in bits. And it was a classic miserable kind of march in. Um, and we got to like, I remember getting to this river and there was an element where we, now bear in mind that we were just told where to go. How you got there was up to you. You, you picked your own route, you picked your own guidance and all this. And then in the background with night vision goggles are all the, the staff who are like assessing people and all the rest of it, watching what you're doing, what you're saying, all the rest of it. Um, but like step back so they're not beside you doing it they let you make mistakes they let you mess up kind of thing right. um, but I remember coming to this river and and there's this and it was you know it was wide enough that you know you would have to swim across it and it was deep enough and we were I remember we sat down for a good 15-20 minutes with a map underneath with a red light on trying to figure out is there any other way around this river where can we go and we're like oh no that's 15 miles up that way that's about 20 miles down the other way to any sort of a bridge or crossing um, and I could see everyone kind of sitting there looking at me going, I'm not getting wet on the first day of a two-week exercise. Don't you dare make me swim through that river. <laughs> um, and I was kind of sitting there going, oh, for sake, I'm going to have to make everyone swim through the river with all their kit. And that means then for the rest of the two weeks, everything you own is wet. 
and I was like, oh, they've done this on purpose, haven't they? God damn it. <laughs> um, so uh, at which point I, 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 I decided at that point that they had done it on purpose to make everyone miserable and put me in a position where I had to like, if you could imagine the situation where people are tired and, and hangry and they're all saying, I'm not getting on that river. This is ridiculous. Uh, and all the kind of, all that frustration was beginning to come out. Um, so I was kind of sensing that and I kind of, Luckily, where we were, it was in the middle of a woodlands, and we were able to get loads of um, rope from this uh, kind of pile of logs that was nearby for a logging company. Um, and I said, tell you what, me and the sergeant, we're going to swim across the river. We'll get to the other side. We'll tie this rope up, and everyone can, can shimmy along the rope and come across the river that way. Um, so, yeah, so we started doing that, get across, and, you know, the lads, um, the lads all got across eventually. Um, took a while. Um, but... Yeah, I remember immediately after that, my main assessor came up to me and he took me aside. And I have never received such a bollocking in my entire life. Um, <laughs> just absolutely tore into me, shouting the head off, calling me every name under the sun. You believe it. Um, and he started like saying, like, oh, you're weak. You couldn't make a firm decision. You've just wasted, you know, 40 minutes doing this. This is ridiculous. Um, and I had to kind of stand there and take it for about 10 minutes while he was doing it. And at the very end of it, I kind of, I made my, I made kind of a little short, little logic of why I did it. I said, I know this makes me look bad. I don't particularly care because the lads are now happier for the next two weeks because of this. Um, and I think the morale and happiness of people on the first day is kind of a little more critical, whatever about 30 minutes. We're ahead of time. We're ahead of where we need to be. Yes, it's a bit, bit of faff, but you know what? We're in a better position for it. And, you know, now let's move forward. And he kind of accepted that a little bit. And I remember afterwards, a couple of days later, he came up to me and said, um, he kind of really kind of he was he was quite kind of proud of the fact that i stood up for kind of people um mm. as a head of some arbitrary bullshit of doing something which is what they wanted us to do um in that particular scenario it wasn't always arbitrary bullshit um but that was one of those positions where there was like an easy option and a hard option and i chose the hard option because i thought it would make um you know that bit of morale would make everyone a little bit more alert and happy for the next two weeks um, so i don't say it's like a silly little example but in those no. kind of examples that's that's the thing that people will remember and for me it was cemented in my mind my own personal philosophy which is if you get people right everything else will follow and if you do things for people they will want to do things for you so if they know kind of you've got their back they'll have your back kind of thing absolutely um, that's and that's so yeah. relevant to absolutely any walk of life Sure exactly oh i'm sorry just just the final point on that is that he made everyone get in the river anyway um because we were meant to so <laughs> <laughs> right but, uh, but you yeah. made your so that was the end of that right. i made my point yeah so there you go <laughs> and and just on that um you were saying like people were grumbling a bit and stuff and i wondered was that because it was training like if you were in an actual war zone and um the commander was considering different options of what to do would it be likely that the people under him would grumble or would they just keep their mouth shut and wait for their order yeah so it's 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 um i think every every, every soldier moans um constantly about everything <laughs> about every little thing um you could give a soldier 50 quid and he complained why didn't you give me six um, you know, they're, they just moan about everything. It's, it's part of it. If they didn't moan and they weren't grumbling about something, I would be very concerned because if they're not vocalizing their frustration, that means they're hiding. Them. So, <laughs> um, so I, I, I think that's, it's, it's what people do. And I think people will moan. And particularly because I was, when I was like under my, my regiment was mostly guys from Yorkshire and my God, did they moan about everything so um but it's like it's just it's just what they do and it's it's all to be taken kind of with a pinch of salt kind of thing 
and none of it is meant in a way like i said if they weren't Simone, you'd be upset um it's all done in a way that's like oh this is bullshit but they still do it and they do it really well um but it's just it's it's just a it's very much a it's something actually with the brits to be fair to them that they 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 wear it as a badge of honor how much they moan um and other nations would comment on it i remember the yanks commenting on it all the time and the germans and because they'd be they'd be very kind of yes sir no sir they would never do anything like that whereas you know some brit sergeants would come in and start kind of saying this is bullshit why are we doing this <laughs> um which is really valuable because it means that no one's afraid to speak back no one's afraid to say you know have you considered this you know i know your plan is x y and z but i actually think we should do this um and whenever kind of it comes down to a decision they never question or they never they won't fight it then but as long as they know they've had their say they've had their their their, their voice heard and i suppose that kind of goes back to my original point whereby it's knowing your people um that's kind of again if there was one theme with the military what i took from it overall it's it's that experience of knowing people and getting it wrong on many occasions but also getting it right um yeah. and i think yes and i think that that for me is is why you know certainly in my experience i never had anyone be insubordinate to me never um but that was because i always listened to them and i always respected their opinion and respected their input um, even though they were fully aware that it was my decision at the end of the day, um, but you know, it's it's an it's an interesting one to to move around. And funnily enough, the more stressful and important the scenario, the more in line people become because the less people want to have an input, uh, the more stress there comes on that leadership position because they people know it's a difficult decision and therefore they don't want to have any part of it. They would right. rather you make the decision. Um, whereas if it's an easy decision, then that's what everyone's vocal about it because that's low risk and who cares. But yeah, and I suppose that's where the the whole leadership being lonely and all the rest of it kind of thing comes in. I suppose um, going back to that point about having to get the lads to want to go out the day after kind of that incident and other incidents, um, those kind of moments, I suppose, is where people are very willing to listen to you because they want leadership at that point and they want to be, you know, convinced of something and they want to be led and told everything's you know going to be all right kind of thing. Do you, so do you, yeah, do you remember- that's that's. Do you remember what you said to the guys that morning when they didn't want to go out? Um, if I if I recall, we basically my key thing was because we if you when we came back that day, we did a full review of exactly what happened that day. Um, so like we spent about two hours going through over anything and everything, uh, and then after that, I was very keen to get everyone back into the routine of what we normally do because routine is the best handrail in the world for when you're in those kind of situations. Um, and certainly that's another bit of advice I'd say if you're never feeling right routine is the best thing in the world because it, it's your handrail to get through something like that um, and I think that was very much what I focused on the next day and I think for for me going out the, kind of the second day um, it was an interesting one because there wasn't anything I did or said in particular that I can recall for that particular in- incident other than I put a lot of focus on why we were doing it um, which, with the given context of Afghanistan, all seems more arbitrary now. Um, but I really put focus on what we're trying to achieve, and I kind of really focused on what are our drills, who's going to do this in this scenario, who's doing that, um, you know, and you know, reiterating who did things well the previous day and other incidents as well. Um, mm. But I wasn't giving any kind of you know, varsity blues, you know, speech <laughs> because no one, no one buys in for that, and that's that's complete bullshit. People want to know that a you know what you're doing and that be you've listened to them and i think in that scenario we definitely did both um and i think by that point in the tour as well i think thankfully i had built up enough kind of respect i suppose that the lads trusted me um so that they they wanted to go out again 
And equally, the people in the group, the other senior leaders, like my senior corporal and my sergeant, guy who'd been in the army 12 years and done everything, like he had my back completely as well. So there was no, there was no kind of blaming. There was no, it's his fault. It's their fault. There was none of that. It was just, let's get out there and do it again. Uh, and if it happens again, this is what we'll do. Um, thankfully, it didn't happen again, um, because I think if that happens to you three or four or five times over a couple of weeks, um, I would hate to be in that position. And I know people who have been in that position um, on the earlier tours when things were really bad, um, you know, to the point that when they were leaving, they knew someone was going to get injured badly. Um, yeah. Like, that's a real challenge of leadership, getting people to go out and convincing people. But yeah, that's, that's the other elements of the military. That's where you get into your... God, without getting going down a rabbit hole of the difference between management, leadership, and then command, and command being the final pin, and um, that, that that you can pull. That's the other element to being in the military is that going to go out because we have to. But my logic has always been that if you get to the point where you're telling someone they have to do something, you failed as a leader because they should want to do it. Interesting. Um, I I could, like I said to you, we could kind of delve into each step of your journey for for absolutely ages. But knowing that time is at a premium, even in a yeah, yeah. even even with a relaxed amount of time to work in, um, I really want to hear about you know kind of in the context of what is happening now in Afghanistan and obviously the the Taliban having taken over again, um, and obviously it's all over the news and everything. I, I kind of want to hear your perspective on on that side of things. So when we and actually just just before we do that, just a quick little fact check here. Could you just tell me what what was your actual like title when in in the military when you arrived and what year did you arrive in Afghanistan? Yeah, so I was I was a police advisory team commander, part of the the PMAC police mentoring and advisory group. Um, that was my regiment and battle group was part of. Um, and we were assigned that task. And um, this was in, we we went on the winter, it was the winter tour of 2012 into 2013. So I think I was out there from what, September onwards and then came back around March, April, something like that. Right. Um, and yeah, so that, that, that that's when we were there. And it's, it seems like an age ago now, but when we were there, that was our focus was very much the like as the secrets in the name, mentoring and advising of the Afghan police. But in reality, it was a, when I was there, we were handing areas back to Afghan security forces um, in areas, specifically areas outside of urban centers. So we were kind of handing back rural areas and areas around main supply routes, so like main roads, and, you know, key logistical connections between cities, et cetera. Um, my job was to essentially make sure they were all in the best position possible for when we handed control back to them. Um, that was the that was the intent anyway <laughs> yeah um and we talked a little bit about this on the on the phone the other day and the thing that you said that really stuck out to me was that um your the word that came to your mind about afghanistan was medieval and that mm. to it's a complete mistake on the part of western people to apply western logic to that country um and and that you you guys could see at that time that it was it was you know it was going to be a disaster as soon as western forces left is that all mm. is that all true and, and uh can you give us an insight into that how, how did you know how, why was it so obvious that it wouldn't you know that the the government forces wouldn't kind of last yeah i mean it's I, I mean, if I if if I'm if I'm blunt, what's happened in the last couple of months is is of no surprise to anyone who served in Afghanistan. I think everyone knew that that was going to happen at some point. 
And even I think General Carter, uh, Dick Carter, who's the kind of chief of the armed forces of the UK, even he made the comments during the week that, um, that you know, um, Afghanistan was a, was a failure. Um, and I think and that we did, we never understood, we never got us, we never did the right thing, which is an amazing thing to say after 20 years in a country that we never, we never fundamentally understood, you know, what we were, well, I won't say we never understood what we were trying to do, but we never understood Afghanistan. And we certainly didn't understand the people and the nuances and the culture. Um, we thought we did in the same way you think you can understand a tribe who's been isolated in Africa or South America somewhere, but you can't apply Western logic to ways of thinking. Um, certainly from from my experience when I was there, I medieval, as, as I mentioned before, was, was a word I used quite often to describe the place. And I say that, from, you know, firstly, from a physical characteristic of, you know, people lived in, you know, you know, they, they built the walls out of mud and stone. There was no electricity. They might have a generator and a kettle if they were well-to-do local. Um, and, you know, it was, you know, people had nothing, quite literally nothing. Um, and even in the urban areas, people had, had you know, nothing. Yes, at the same time, they'd have a mobile phone. That bizarre, weird, um, <laughs> kind of third-world modernism where people don't have a toilet, but they have, a, they have the latest tablet phone. Um, but... Yeah, it was it, it was that that was kind of the first thing that strikes you is just how agricultural and backwards kind of just compared to the West that it is, or not even the West, just just kind of the developed world. Um, and then I think secondly was the fact that we tried to apply our logic of government being in control of something and that government being diligent, not corrupt, you know, and working the way that we would imagine a government or a public service to work. Um, neglecting to appreciate that Afghanistan exists maybe on a map. In reality, it is hundreds of local tribes and elders and complex mixes of slight variations in religion and ethnicity. And um, for example, where we were in Helmand province was a, a hub of Pashtu. Um, and the Pashtuns had like they had nothing in common with you know the lads from up north. They were they might as well be different countries. Um, and they certainly you know, as much as someone living in the middle of nowhere in Western Mayo might have little in common with someone from Dublin, you can amplify that by a million times with someone from Helmand or Kabul. They're different worlds. Um, mm -hmm. Then you kind of got to look at where they look at for, you know, their inspiration. You know, religion is obviously such a big thing there. The fact that no one would get upset over a local governor embezzling, you know, all the money that was meant to pay salaries of police officers and soldiers. But if someone dropped a Quran in an American base 40 miles away, they would all march through the night to protest against them. Um, you know, there was stuff like that that, you know, we just couldn't get our heads around why they were prioritizing one thing over the other, why no one was getting behind this, all the money and effort. And, you know, they got thrown into trying to get the government set up. Um, and then I suppose there was the two-facedness of the whole thing, whereby a lot of people felt let down by the fact that you could be speaking to one commander during the day as a, Afghan security and knowing well that in the evening he was off to meet his Taliban buddies for a cup of tea. And you're kind of thinking, what are you doing here? Who is this person? And um, we're just giving him weapons and boots and resources and, and you know, what's going to happen when we leave kind of thing. And equally then when you did get the honest, genuine people who were trying to make a difference, and believe me, there was a lot of those as well, um, they would all look at us with kind of, you know, reddening bulging eyes kind of when we said we were leaving because they said as soon as they leave they've got to leave because they know in the middle of the night they're going to get taken over again because they know over that horizon there's thousands of, of lads just waiting for us to leave um, and I think that was also the other thing that we when we were there was that things weren't as violent as they were maybe around 2007, 2008, 2009 
um, because the Taliban were very deliberately taking a step back from combat operations to, I would call it, lulling us into the sense of security that things are improving. Um, when in reality, what they saw was, they don't want to be here forever. Why are we wasting manpower? Let's just chill out for a bit. Then wait for them to leave. And when they do, we'll come in and take power again. Funnily enough, that's exactly what happened. Um, so there was that element of it. And then I suppose there was... Um, then I suppose there was just the kind of corruption and unprofessionalness of the whole thing as well. Um, the fact that, yeah, you know, if they turned up for work, if they weren't high on drugs, if they weren't embezzling money, there was just corruption right everywhere. No one took institutions seriously. No one took commitments to things seriously. Um, the amount of times I would meet with local commanders for hours planning an operation to say, you know, meet me here at 7 a.m. We're going to move into this village and clear the Taliban out of this place, and then we can set up a new police checkpoint in there. And they just wouldn't turn up the next morning. They might turn up at midday. <laughs> um, right. And you kind of turn around and go, what, what are we What are we doing here for? And they'd all turn up kind of high or something else. And maybe one of the police commanders is like, yeah, let's go to the thing, this, this direction. At which point I'd say, no, no, not that village. We're going to the other village. And they go, no, no, we don't want to go to that one. We're going to this one. <laughs> so there was, there was that element of frustration. Is there any possibility that stuff like that was kind of slightly intentional? Like when you say they're like a police officer during the day and Taliban at night and you describe that story, it makes it sound to me like they're kind of pretending. They're pretending to be incompetent because they're actually intentionally not wanting to help you. Or is that too much? No, that was always theory? that was always a discussion when we were there as well. And when we were there, there was the huge element of the, the big thing when we were there was the insider threat, which was people in Afghan army, Afghan, Afghan police uniforms who would just randomly take out guns and shoot everyone in the room. That was the huge thing when we were there. Um, so as a consequence, we couldn't, like me as a commander, I would often have to go in and have you know long discussions about things with various commanders and I'd take all my armor off and everything to go into people's you know um, police checkpoints and stuff. Um, but we would always have what we labeled as guardian angels, which is essentially I'd always have one of my lads in the corner of a room with, a, with his hands on the trigger of a weapon, just in case anyone looked funny. Um, so thankfully nothing like that ever happened but it was happening all the time when we were there um, and it was something we were so edgy about and they knew we were edgy about <laughs> so it was and it, and it was such an awkward conversation to bring up with anyone as well when you're trying to build trust and rapport um, and yeah that was awkward real awkward um, but yeah it was it was a I mean if I I mean we I could go on and give millions of examples of that and I think the reality was at the time, the good people who wanted change and things to happen, they were the ones I listened to and they were the ones who would all say, as soon as you go, it's just going to go back to the way it is because no one is committed to this. No one cares. And fundamentally, what we never got about Afghanistan was nobody cares about governance because it's such a religious society. And that's why the Taliban are winning because people lean towards that. They, the Taliban are Afghanistan because they represent Afghan identity. When you look at the security forces, they are this American puppet, and that's how they're viewed. If you're in the army or the, the police force, you're deemed to be part of this kind of you know, puppet state kind of thing. You don't really represent Afghanistan type thing, but the Taliban, they're here. They support Afghanistan. They're the real spirit of this country, and mm. that has so much power. And I mean, you could link that to, you could use that same example with many countries in the world where there's been a foreign power kind of trying to influence activities and set up governments, etc. Um, and then, of course, you have Afghans' history. I mean, this isn't the first time they've kicked out of Western power. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's the other side of it. There's a huge history to it, one they're very, very proud of. I think every any Afghan police or army commander worth his, worth his weight 
um, in gold would have a a belt buckle of a Soviet soldier on his on his uniform, um, one that he had acquired himself in, as they would call it, the good old days. <laughs> so, so there was that you know national pride element to it, and I think. Yeah, fundamentally, people will abandon their salary if it's even getting paid to them in favor of their religion and national identity, um, which you could draw so many parallels to Vietnam for the same thing without getting into a huge debate about that. But that's that's kind of what we always missed. And I suppose it's you could be very cynical about the whole thing and say it's another example of Western powers trying to, you know, nation build, and not getting what they're actually trying to build in the first place. Um, but then you have to remember why why were we even there in the first place? And I think Joe Biden, to be fair, God help him at the moment, he doesn't have an easy job in getting through this. But he made a very good point, one which I would agree with, which was the original intent of going to Afghanistan was an anti-terrorism goal. Now we got stuck there and it turned into counterinsurgency and nation building, which it should never have gotten turned into because there are lots of other countries in the world where we could be doing the same thing. And why Afghanistan? Why is that particularly mm. important as, as opposed to any other country in the world? Um, but yeah, the anti-terrorism facts in the first place, you could argue that has been a success. The fact that um, when they moved in initially, you know, the Afghanistan was an absolute harbor for that kind of thing. It was it was proven at the time. I, think, I suppose that's the fear now is that it's going to return to that. You know, when you think of its proximity to Pakistan and its easy access to blah, 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 blah all that stuff that we all know. But yeah, so I suppose there's a there's a there's a lot to be learned in terms of, I think it's is it one of the principles of war, the selection and maintenance of the aim, in one of the core principles. Um, know why you're there, know what you want to achieve, and when it's done, get out because why are you there otherwise? Yeah, um, that was certainly a, a lesson to be learned. <laughs> well, you actually kind of touched upon it there, but it, it is something I wanted to ask you because you know, like obviously when. Afghanistan is in the news uh, as much as it has been lately. Kind of uh, most ordinary people become armchair experts to some degree, or you know, mm. there's a lot, a lot of chat about it. And if I ever have conversations like that, I, I think it's a, a a genuinely extremely difficult question to answer. Of uh, you know, is it ever appropriate for Western powers in this modern world to intervene militarily? Mm in any other country mm -hmm. and as you touch upon mm -hmm. there there's loads of countries where terrible things are happening so why do you pick one country over another but mm -hmm. uh you know you having actually been in the midst of of one of these interventions yourself with much more uh relevant experience to talk about it uh you know what what do you say to that it, it, do you do you think it is ever appropriate for western countries to do that yeah it's it's a, it's a really important question um and i think I think the first thing to acknowledge is that we, and I don't think we acknowledge this enough, is that we live in the post 9-11 world. Um, and, you know, the, the more we reflect as it's the, is it, is it the 20th anniversary this week? I think it is actually. Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, um, as I reflect kind of on 9-11, you know, when you think about it, that day changed the world completely. And I know it's cliche and cheesy to say it, but it's absolutely true. It changed the dynamic of everything. Um, it created this anxiety and fear in the west that we're no longer untouchable and america isn't the city on the hill anymore they're this you know they lash out and they'll, they'll punch a <laughs> they punch the homeless child because they can kind of thing and mm. it's it changed the dynamic entirely it changed the this kind of this jingoistic let's all go to war for you know god bless america and the brits are really bad for it as well um all that has become so sour and toxic and negative um let's say rightly so um i certainly don't enjoy that kind of thing um 
but it's in terms of the name of the game has changed entirely because sorry my dog is playing with a chew toy hey <laughs> get up there and play with that <laughs> couldn't, couldn't um, have chosen a more serious topic no, he's, <laughs> to he's, he's interrupting strategic conversation <laughs> yeah. um but uh yeah, so I think the name of the game has changed entirely. And when you look at the look at the lessons that have been learned from, well, let, let's let, if I go back to what was the last proper conventional war, and you don't include Iraq because that was a walkover. The other side didn't turn up. <laughs> um, the last conventional war was Korea, and that ended in a stalemate. Um, and that was that was a huge war, the Forgotten War, as it were, you know, in terms of its scale, and it was a total war and involved so many nations. Um, since then, we've been dealing with these proxy wars, these contingency wars, these wars with without clear definitions of what the goal is. When I when you look at the likes of Vietnam, you look at Somalia, you look at Sierra Leone, you look at all the other examples of these little things that have been going on, um, and then you look at Afghanistan and Iraq, Iraq, which was a complete and utter total failure. <laughs> no one, no one will ever question that. Um, that was an example of how not to do things, um, and that is obviously been the domino effect for what happened in Syria, um, which happened in, and then Afghanistan obviously was slightly different because Afghanistan was very much a, they hit us, so let's hit them harder type thing. Uh, it was the Western world, well, America out for vengeance and the Western world went along with it. I think what's changed now is that we've been through so many of those bad experiences. Um, and I remember being in the military at the time when they were literally making the decision in parliament as to whether they were going to go to Syria or not. And I remember at the time, everyone making the comments that if this was 10 years ago, this wouldn't even be a discussion, we'd be on our way to Syria. Um, but the fact of the matter now is that we live in a world where people are going, we know what that's going to turn into. We're not going to Syria for the next 15, 20 years to get bogged down in another thing we know we can't win. And that is, and even you know, military strategists will agree with that. That's, this used to be the realm of politicians, and that was their opinion. And, you know, ag agreeably so, the public don't want to get involved in these endless wars anymore. Um, but now we have military strategists also saying, don't touch it, don't go near it. We know there's a humanitarian crisis. We know it's a challenge, but the only thing we can do in there is kill everyone. And then, will that solve the problem? Because there'll be no one left. Um, you know, what's, what's the logic of that? So now there is this fear and anxiety about getting involved in anything. Um, and that was the army I left. That was the sensation. That was the, you know, people wanted to go and do things and help people, but only if there was very clear boundaries in terms of what was going to be achieved, who we were sending. So this is now what's led us into what's current currently. Um, so there are so many engagements where we could do a full-scale engagement. And when I say there's stuff happening in other countries, that we are involved in other countries. And when I say we, I mean, you know, the UN, I mean, NATO. Um, you know, when you look at, I, I look at Ukraine as the big example that where we sent a lot of mentors and advisors. Um, mentors and advisors being people who will go in and train local forces. It's a huge thing in Africa. The Irish Defence Forces are involved with it heavily in Sudan and in uh, Mali as well. Um, actually, it's interesting how the Irish Defence Forces actually work alongside the UK in Mali, training the local forces, um, which is really interesting as part of the UN mission. Um, but there's so much more of that now, whereby the goal now is to get people to provide stability for themselves. That's now the new strategy, and that's what we're going to see more of in the next you know, half century. So the days of there being a conflict in a country somewhere, the response is no longer going to be, let's send, send several battle groups to go sort that out. It's now going to be a case of, well, let's go send some people to embed, understand what's happening. Let's find out what they want. Let's pick a side, and let's make sure we train that size to you know, do it for themselves, give them the resources they need. 
Um, and then our only tactical engagements would be, as is now the huge thing, is engagement with special forces. Um, again, Irish Rangers very active in Mali and Sudan um, because that's what they do. They go in and support the mentoring by then doing targeted military strikes on high-value assets by using special force tactics. Special forces, of course, being small units of you know eight, ten guys that will get helicoptered into somewhere or they might drive in. Um, do something very specific, like extract or deny a particular leader um, or important individual or capturing something, whatever it is, um, and then so, return. Did, but we're not getting bogged into anything. That's, sorry, did, that's did, the new strategy. Did you just, uh, I was just interested enough, did you say extract or deny? Was that that phrase? Yeah, yeah I guess, sorry, to like, uh, you know, kill someone. <laughs> deny. <laughs> um, depending depend, depend on what it is. I've never heard that yeah, the, before. The, 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 yeah, so yeah, sorry. That, that's the other thing about the ministry. You use terminology to um to make things sound nicer than they are. <laughs> right, yeah. I suppose. Um, yeah, that's another psychology element of it. You know, you never refer to them as people; they are the enemy. All that kind of psychological things that justify things in your head. It's all very interesting. Yeah. Well, I well actually that's um, it's, uh, that leads me actually really nicely onto to a question I wanted to ask you because because I'm conscious. You know, I could talk to you. I'd be fascinated to talk to you for hours about your time in Afghanistan, your thoughts on all this kind of stuff. But but I I'm conscious you did you did have a a, a good bit of life after that, and I do want to get onto that. Um, but I wanted to ask you about the the people of Afghanistan in terms of what it's kind of a two pronged question. Did you ever or did you ever get the opportunity to just have a normal conversation or anything approaching a normal conversation? with Afghan people. Oh yeah, all, all, all the time, every patrol. Um, I would I would make a very deliberate effort of going just through villages and I'd just go in and I'd just sit in their little town square and chat with the kids, give them pens and and the, you know, the classic, <laughs> the classic Vietnam photo, you know, image of, you know, the soldiers handing out candy and all that. They genuinely loved us. They just loved getting stuff because they had nothing. So if you could give them mm. a, a bar of chocolate, give them a Yorkie bar was like, that was the most valuable asset to a, a five-year-old in Afghanistan. They loved it. Um, but pens and paper as well, so they could draw and all that kind of stuff. And then sitting down with the locals and just talking to them about, you know, what's on your mind? What's what's going on here? Like, what's, you know, what's happening? And you'd hear all these stories about, um, and, you know, then, as, as is always the case, the nicest people ever. You know, they would, they have nothing to give you everything. It was embarrassing. Um, you know, when they would offer you something and you knew that they, that was their one bit of bread they had for the day or something. And I was like, no, 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 it's just, you know, but you couldn't turn it down then because that'd be rude and all the rest of it. So, but then you'd hear these stories of how, you know, maybe once a year they would have saved up enough money so one person could go to Mecca and they would, you know, they would flip and hitchhike their way to Iran and then hitchhike their way down through all the countries until they ended up in Saudi Arabia because they couldn't afford a flight. Um, they'd make their trip. They would spend their time and they would come back and they would have a two-week party when they came back to celebrate and they would hear all the stories and of course he didn't have a camera so we had to describe everything um he might have got a postcard or something to show them yeah. you know what the site looked like um so you'd hear all these kind of stories and you'd hear kind of their aspirations for the future you'd hear them tell stories about where they come from what it used to be like um it, they would avoid the taliban as a conversation for the reasons i've discussed already because they are one and the same and it's kind of yeah when and often they would come up with the question of what do we do when you leave um you know who do we look to then i can't look to the government um and that was that was the awkward conversation and you kind of avoided that so you just tried to keep it um friendly and personable but ultimately all they wanted like anything was just to have a you know a future for the children and security safety and a source of 
a source of income, which, by the way, was mostly poppy <laughs> in our area. Mm. So, yeah, that was the other thing. Right. And that was, uh, you know, could they legally sell that? Uh, what? How did that work? Um, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> technically, they weren't meant to be, but, I mean... What is, I don't know. I, don't quote me on this. I think it's eighty or ninety percent of the world's opium comes from Helmand Province in Afghanistan. Oh my god! And literally every direction was just poppy fields, like crazy, like walking through it all the time. Um, and hashish, just like fields of it, as you would see a field of wheat, um, because that's what they grew, and it grew really well there. It was a local crop, and obviously it was hugely valuable. Um, and you know, you, what do you do? Do you turn up? That's like. Um, going to a dairy farmer down in Sligo and saying, you know, cows are illegal now. And him going, well, how do I make an income? I only, I only know how to make cows. I can't, I can't grow anything on this land. That's awful land in the West world. Um, so it was that kind of thing. Um, so the government would try and give them subsidies to do something else, but obviously it just, there was no money in any other crop. Um, so like no one there, no one there did it. You know, they do, um, they would smoke hashish, but they wouldn't smoke, um, or like, so they wouldn't, they wouldn't, you know, go down the route of opium, but, um, for them, it was just a quite literally a cash crop, and they would sell it. And so, yeah, yeah, it just seems incidentally like... good, good, a good, a good lesson learned. By the way, is if you're if you're burning a field of hash, don't stand downwind of it. <laughs> oh, you learned that the hard way, did you? Yeah, I learned that one the hard way. The wind changed, shall we say? <laughs> did you? Uh, did you like get a whitey, or were you just the most stoned you've ever been in your life? Oh, we, we made it back to camp. I'm not really sure how. Someone came picked us up, and we made it back. <laughs> <laughs> that's got that'd be a good that'd be a good scene in a film um yeah uh, good day. <laughs> yeah and um i get probably last question at least for now uh before we move on to to what happened after afghanistan but hmm. just finally because again it's a you know such a an important topic and one of the main topics that comes up when people talk about it at the moment which is uh afghan women like what was your perception uh, like uh, did you did you meet women were they you know i don't even understand if they would have been allowed to talk to you obviously during the during those years they would have because you guys were there i guess i'm gar- oh, i'm garbling you, this you, question but please yeah, just uh, inform me yeah no 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 i get you, i get you yeah and and and, and the answer to that is even when we were there in the, the quote-unquote good times it was still the culture like you didn't speak like we were in a very religious area um, and whenever we would be coming into a village, all the women would disappear into houses, and the men we would speak to the men. Um, I only spoke to one Afghan woman when I was there, and that was because she was one of the only Afghan police cadets, <laughs> um, as part of like a real God helper. And <laughs> um, she must have been one head of a woman, but um, yeah, she was the only woman I spoke to briefly. Other than that, it was it was you just didn't see women. You would see children, and um, like you know, under the age of seven or eight, and um, but any older than that, they would be. You know they would be appropriately covered or and they would go inside whenever they saw foreigners turning up um so yeah no it wasn't and you didn't discuss them either and you certainly didn't talk to them in front of the men and um, that was just not done um so yeah another world as they say you had to kind of yeah. turn a blind eye to that kind of thing for the sake of decorum yeah i i was just um by way of a kind of a bit of research before chatting to you to just familiar familiarize myself a little bit i was watching some news reports or you know on afghanistan and one of them was a a, a female doctor and she was kind of talking about how mm. like the the women rarely even hung out with each other like and it, a lot of them had bad psychological problems because they were just so you know mm-hmm. isolated with no distractions and it, it just does sound a really really difficult situation for them and 
yeah yeah that's causing a lot of people just, a lot i think of it's just yeah it is and it's um, God, i really don't want to talk about it here but then there was also the issue of of children um in unpleasant ways shall we say um mm. which was another element of that culture in that particular part of the world which was rife um oh, and that was probably that was probably more deserving than you know the women were relatively well treated in that respect um but yeah that's that's another thing which was a bit um eye-opening and all the more gut-wrenching to have to kind of turn a blind eye to because what are you going to do um yeah, yeah. so anyway okay. yeah, that's, yes that's, so, not positive, so yeah <laughs> no no i hear i hear you and i, yeah. I understand yeah. not wanting to get into that so yeah. so let's go yeah. to you finish there um yes you come back uh and uh am i right in thinking your next role was was it in germany first you were uh d- describe oh, yeah. it to so, me so so sorry it's still in the military i i came back and i was um the regiment i was in was actually originally a tank regiment um but they were transitioning to armored reconnaissance um which is essentially looking for things in armored bathtubs um so driving around being all sneaky peaky um which was really good fun um but as part of that we had a new vehicle and new weapons so we had to basically design tactics and doctrine around how we were going to do this because it was a completely new skill set that we hadn't done with that combination before um so i had quite an enjoyable year and a half doing that um you know literally just going out on training exercises for weeks on end and trying things out seeing what worked seeing what didn't work um it was really enjoyable and kind of have my have my little stamp i suppose on creating some doctrine i suppose for that moving forward doctrine being the 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 sops as it were the the um the, the ikea guidebook for how to conduct certain things <laughs> right um so that was that was that was an enjoyable period and then after that um i moved to, into a completely different role which was uh, a, as a jtac joint terminal attack controller um, and that was three years based in germany but i was all over europe america and um, training with every air force on the sun doing that and what that role essentially was was i was trained and um, it was nearly a year to get qualified in it um i was trained as a essentially an air traffic controller primarily um but then also as a weaponier weapon weaponerist um the the verb be weaponeering um that was a role which is essentially how do you use a weapon system or a bomb or something to get a desired effect and there's a whole science behind that to mitigate um you know ex- unnecessary damage etc um and then like angles of attack and speed and temperature and everything comes into it it's, it's really interesting um and then there's also another element of understanding you know um imagery because obviously aircraft have you know sensor pods and everything so it's understanding all that element of it so it's really interesting um and then at the end of it all you're basically qualified to speak to aircraft and control airspace and coordinate air attacks on ground targets whereby i'm essentially speaking to fighter jets and telling them what to bomb what angles to come at where it's come from it is as fun as it sounds it was the it was the best job i've ever had i absolutely loved it to bits it was the right side of challenging and exciting um and yeah so i did that for three years based in germany but spent a lot of time in canada and america and italy and germany and places um, yeah. doing that rarely was even in the uk so yeah that was a really exciting role it's it's funny you say like i, I must I, I kind of must pause a little bit that because it's something like i sense with you you seem very kind of um kind of clear-eyed or something you, d- you don't seem uh like somebody who any kind of darkness overtook you or anything in your time in a war zone or anything and like the way you describe 
uh, th- that you know aiming aiming the missiles and stuff as fun. I-, I totally understand what you mean by fun. Like I can imagine doing it in, doing it in a <laughs> video are. game and it being loads of fun. But it's something about when it when we're talking about actual bombs, I can imagine people going, "Whoa!" That the description of that as fun yeah, is uh, kind of. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, so and I, I, I completely agree. And I suppose the, the fact is that I didn't do that role for real. I only did it in training scenarios. So that was one element of, and I knew I was going to do it for real um, because I was leaving the army then at the end of that role. So, you know, I was, it was more like I was trained to do that role if need be kind of thing. Um, it's, it's incidentally a role that like pretty much every special forces is trained in. So it gave me a lot of exposure to their world as well, which was really interesting. Um, and kind of seeing what they do and how they operate. Um, but yeah, you're, I suppose there is a it's, a, it's a really interesting conversation. I haven't spoken to a lot of pilots who spent a lot of time on operations in Syria as they were at the time, um, and like Iraq and Afghanistan. And there is, a, and particularly the pilots of drones. Um, so there's, when I go into too much detail, there's a, there's a particular drone, the Predator, um, it's one of the bigger ones. It can kind of loiter over a target for days on end, just if it's getting refueled. Um, but it's a huge thing. It's like 737 size. It's a big, big drone. Um, but they're flown from Las Vegas. Um, and also there's another site in Tampa. I don't know if they're still there, but that's where they were at the time. Um, and there's these kind of shipping container type things with two pilots, um, mission commander, and then behind them sits a lawyer. Um, they're quite literally just making sure they have everything they need to make a strike. And there'll be a line of maybe 20 or 30 of those. And they're all off on different missions doing various things, some for the CIA in Colombia, some over Afghanistan, some somewhere else. And they're sitting in these little rooms playing what would look like and feel like a computer game, except it's all real, except they're at 5,000 miles away in a box. Um, yeah. for, and the guy, and this, it's similar for pilots who are up in the sky looking at something through a little screen in their cockpit when they have a weapon effect on something. There is this really weird detachment from what you're doing. Um, and I, I've only heard every pilot who's done it describe it as being surreal. and You never quite feel comfortable with it because you would feel far more comfortable if you were there in person, you know, stabbing someone. That would feel easier than doing what they do, um, at least afterwards, because there's this such a weird detachment from what you've done. And you never actually fully see and appreciate what you've done afterwards. Um, it's a really weird world and you're absolutely right it is bizarre and I think people kind of get a satisfaction out of it because it's aircraft it's it's very top gun it's very you know it's it's cool and within military it's seen as quite a cool job to have it's it's very influential and particularly in the modern scheme of warfare like I was talking about before whereby we don't like putting troops on the ground anymore so those kind of roles with aircraft and drones have become more and more important because they are seen to be far more politically appealing because there's no one on the ground doing it. And they can always just say, oh, a bomb hit a thing and therefore done. And there'll be something in the news about it and we'll move on to the next thing. So it's that's very much the way things are going. But for the people doing it, I, I completely agree with you. It is weird and it's... Uh, it's that separation from it. And it's like I said, it'd be easier if you were on the ground pulling the trigger yourself, but it's the fact you're away from it and detached from it. Mm. Um, it's a similar thing that the guys in the artillery, they'll deal with, you know, the guys who are firing guns from 30 miles away and all, all they, all they have is a voice on a radio telling them what to do, but they're the one firing the big bombs as it were. Um, yeah, it's bizarre. Mm. Yeah. And I think there's a, there's a potential kind of rabbit hole to go down with that, but Oh yeah, but maybe maybe <laughs> let's not. Let's not. Um, yeah. So, uh, 
it sounds some of the strikes me you're doing all this traveling around you said you're around europe and around america and you know all these different places so in terms of uh just pure the pure adventure that you were looking for uh it's uh, i know that this was in the you were doing this stuff in the lead up to leaving the military like it sounds like you really mm. got what you wanted in that respect like you really saw a huge amount of the world and did you get oh, to yeah. i mean sorry yeah 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 no i i i i agree i mean i i for for a guy like bear in mind all this i was 28 29 at the time so you know this was all i was seeing the world i was having a great time going out with random bundesvier soldiers of a weekend and in, in hamburg you know it was it was great crack um really enjoyed it um in terms of seeing the world challenging myself and i think at the end of it like this this was all of a seven year period from beginning to end um and i packed a lot in and i learned a lot and i developed a lot and had a lot of life experiences and at the end of it all, I felt I ticked every box I wanted to tick. Um, and yeah, in terms of that kind of travel element, I absolutely loved it because I wasn't traveling as a tourist and I wasn't traveling as a business person going from office to office. I was going to, I was going to random places um, like Sullen's Arrow in Corsica, where I spent like a month. Where is that? Random place. Um, Roma in Denmark, this little island off the west coast, which is a bombing range. You know, going to all like these random places where I would you would never choose to go unless you were happened to be driving through it kind of thing. Um, I loved that experience to go see proper, you know, the actual country. It'd be the equivalent of coming to Ireland and going to Leeds and not seeing any any yeah, other yeah. parts of the country kind of thing. <laughs> um, I loved that element of it. And the other element, I absolutely, I'm a, I love Europe, by the way. I'm a huge EU fan. And I love I love the kind of everyone being together and us all kind of thinking the same, blah, 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 and a big community effort. And one thing I experienced traveling around NATO and dealing with the French, the Italians, the Danes, the Norwegians, everyone, um, was that you know, we're all on the same wavelength fundamentally as people. And I absolutely love that. And particularly being in the military, when you turn up in another country and you meet someone else in the military, it's, I suppose it'd be like an actor meeting another actor from another country. You kind of, mm. you just click and it's like that professional mutual respect. Um, it's like, you get it, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you can, mm. you can immediately start working with them and have talked to them. About, you know, they'll all have the same gripes. They might moan as much as the lads from Yorkshire, but... You know, they'll certainly, um, you know, they'll, 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 you know, they get it. And I absolutely love that. Um, funnily enough, I always really appreciated how every country I went to fully appreciated the fact that I was an Irishman in the UK and always gave me a pat on the back and I go, yeah, all right. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I thank you. I appreciate you acknowledge the awkwardness of the situation. Thank you. That's good. And, <laughs> and actually that, that um, reminds me because you said at the beginning uh, there was a moment uh, is it is it worth telling us that you said there was one slightly awkward moment to do with you being Irish? Uh, do you want is yeah. that is that one of those dark rabbit holes we shouldn't go near or or uh... no it's it's not it's it's not really it's um the, so the regiment that I was part of was officially they were half Yorkshire half Northern Ireland for the recruitment um and their traditional home in Ireland um was in Enniskillen Enniskillen which is a famous um um. Garrison town. There was always lots of regiments based in, in Enniskillen. Yeah, I've um, been there. Infantry been there. and cavalry. And, yeah, yeah, so a beautiful, beautiful town as well. For man, it's lovely. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, there was one occasion. It's the it's the only occasion I had to go to Northern Ireland in uniform, and <laughs> I tried to get out of it by, by giving every excuse in the book. And but my lieutenant colonel, who was my you know commanding officer at the time. Um, he just didn't get the hints and I didn't want to have an open conversation about it because I was like, don't put me in a position where I have to be awkward about this. Come on, dude. I'm from Dublin. You know, it should be awkward for me to go do this. Anyway, um, he was just more excited. He was a classic English guy who didn't really get how awkward it was. He was just like, oh, you're all Irish. It's all fine. 
Um, as is, that's another rabbit hole to go down. But anyway, um, but yeah. Anyway, I had to go over. There was a uh, there was a ceremony to do with um, to do with the the regiment being in Enniskillen that, that that it was part of. And part of the ceremony basically involved a um, half the regiment marching through Enniskillen as part of like the freedom of Enniskillen type thing. Um, something that you know happens once every couple of years, even less so in. It's quite common in the UK. Like people see it all the time in towns around the UK. It's just something towns do to like recognize their their units obviously it doesn't happen in northern ireland for very obvious reasons because it, it's a, an attention grabber um, for all the wrong reasons um but anyway i was kind of forced to go do that and i really didn't like it um and there, I, I have never felt dirtier and felt more awkward than having to march through Enniskill in a in a British Army uniform, and I was kind of that was kind of a day where I was like, uh, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I'm done. I, I always said that I don't. I, I never want to. You know, I'll I'll be part of this as long as it has nothing to do with Northern Ireland, um, mm. and that was true up to that point. But then the fact that I was kind of forced to do it um, really put like a bitter. It was a bitter pill to swallow, and this was me trying to pull a sickie and get every excuse in the world, and they were having none of it. They're like, "No, you have to go." <laughs> so I was like, "Why are you? Why are you putting me in this position? It's a bit awkward." Anyway, so mm. yeah, so that was. It's not. It's not that dramatic a story, but it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to actually go and do it. And even thinking about it now, I cringe. I was just, oh no, it's like, ugh. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't even like saying it. So yeah. yeah, and I think for me it was just like, no, that's not why I joined. I'm not here for this. I want no part of this kind of thing. Yeah. So, did you ever? Did you yeah. ever get anyway. the? Did, did you get the piss taken out of you much for being Irish, like in Santurce and then? Oh yeah, all the time, all the time. Yeah, yeah. Of course, right. I was. I was uh, captain, captain potato. Of course, <laughs> but that's but that's um, part creative. of the force. I was saying, in, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. They gave us a little more creative. <laughs> um, but. But that was the thing, like, no matter where you were from or whatever slight difference there was about you, people would just go for it. That was just how the, and that's why I was never bothered by it, because that was my thing. I was the Irish guy, the, the weird guy from Dublin. Um, whereas for, for other people, they might have a, um, a slightly different tone of skin, or they might have a different kind of accent, or they might have, um, maybe they're really into something effeminate, something, I don't know, whatever it is that will be chosen as the thing to go for. And bear in mind, the military, the army in particular is not remotely PC. There is, you know, anything is game. So, and that's kind of part of the bonding, the laddish rugby club mentality that it's, as you would expect, I suppose. It's a very, that kind of community. So, um, and it's kind of, it's just part of the bonding and all the rest of it. So none of it was taken in any, like I never received anything negative. The only thing that I would ever describe as being, upset about was and i don't think this is something i'd be upset about it just annoyed me and i think anyone who's lived in england in particular i say england very differently because the scots and the welsh get it a little more at least but anyone who's lived in england will will understand the frustration of the english just not knowing ireland history and knowing the difference between things and knowing why things are a certain way and that really annoyed me sometimes and, and it's just but that's you know i don't hold that against anyone because if you go to France or Germany, you'll get someone who's just as ignorant about Ireland. And go to, you know, everyone is, there's people in Ireland who don't know what the capital of Estonia is, you know. So, but I think the frustration is, is that we consider the English to be such a huge part of our history for obvious reasons. Um, whereas for them, we're just one of many chapters 
<laughs> and I think that's that, that that's where probably the frustration is. But yeah, no, I never, you know, honestly, um, apart from just people being a bit ignorant and stupid sometimes, but they're always very open to learn and understand. Um, mm. And if there's one thing I would say about particularly lads in the military um, is that there is no one in the UK who knows Ireland better than people in the military because they study it. They study Northern Ireland. They, right. It's one of the big things in Santers. Um, and, and Northern Ireland is the do never do count, never do hearts and minds operations like this again because we messed up in Northern Ireland. Um, and that was reassuring, I suppose. And, yeah. and equally, anyone I ever met who had served in Northern Ireland would always make the comments that uh, both sides are equally as guilty. You know, there's no good guy, bad guy. It was just a mess. <laughs> that was always their opinion of the place. And they would always say, we never got it. We never understood it. Um, yeah, that's another rabbit hole to go down, mm. obviously. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, and I'm, I'm conscious uh, probably uh, we, we must uh, get on to your, your post-military career. Um, so mm. tell, me, tell me about that. You, you, you decide to leave. Um, I gather part of that was what, what you described already. You know, you were uncomfortable at that moment in Enniskillen, but also... There was no, there wasn't going to be any more major operations going on, so you kind of felt like no, yeah. So that was that was the, like I, everything I mentioned. The name of the game had changed. Everything was kind of winding down. At that point, if you'd have gone back to Afghan or something, it was to do something relatively safe and mundane. It wasn't the adventure that it was previously, kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, there was kind of there was no real incentive to stay. And equally, I'd done everything I wanted to. And then in addition to that, I was. I was a bit fed up of having to constantly have the conversation about being the Irish guy in the British Army. And I was just tired of all that. I wanted to be like, wanted to do something I was proud of, I could speak about without having to give a, several annexes as to why I did that. <laughs> um, so that was kind of something I wanted to move away from. It was just emotionally draining. Um, if, it was, if I'd have been in the Irish Defence Forces, who knows? I might have stayed in. Probably not. But um, anyway, I did everything I wanted to do and I was ready for the next challenge. Um, I suppose that was the first step. And um only when i reflect on it now do i realize like that change career change which is what it was but it was also like a lifestyle change enormously so um like that was a two and a half year if not longer project if i include my first half year my current employer um because first of all i hadn't a clue what i wanted to do um secondly i was like where am i going to do it am i going to stay in the uk am i going to go back to ireland am i going somewhere else um, thankfully, Brexit answered that question for me. <laughs> that was my incentive to come home. Brexit. Um, yeah, so that was that was my. If there was any doubt that I, at that point, I was kind of humming and hawing about staying in Edinburgh or London or something, but then Brexit happened and it kind of it changed my opinion of the country a little bit. Um, and I was like, no, nah, I don't want to be here anymore. I've had enough. I'm out. <laughs> so that that amplified that decision. Um, and then I was kind of looking at careers. Where do I go? And I was looking at the likes of. Pretty much every cavalry officer goes into finance or investment banking in London. It's what they all do. They do their seven or eight years, and then they go into J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs. It's kind of like it's a it is the classic boys club. <laughs> um, mm. So that's the route I essentially went then first because it was it was relatively easy. It was a well trodden path, so you know I could get into it. The doors were open, as it were. It was just my just necessary for me to do the you know the the, the relevant applications and whatnot, and interviews and all the rest of it. Um, and then, you know, people were also saying, oh, that's the one you can earn the most money doing as well. And I was like, well, that all sounds reasonable. I think as a first protocol, I'll give that a go and see what happens. Um, so I ended up working for, for a asset man management firm. Um, I think my second day, I 
I've made the decision I do not want to be here <laughs> um, mm. pretty quickly. Um, so it was not my cup of tea at all. It was just not what I thought it would be. It was, and then there was also the element of it was felt like such a step down from what I had been doing a couple of months earlier. Um, mm. <laughs> as I was just, as I was just describing, going from you know coordinating you know ten or twelve American jets onto on some cool training exercise to then um, just kind of struggling away with a spreadsheet. I was kind of like, oh god, is this the is this the glorious professional services job they all said that I should be aspiring to? Is this yeah. it? Um, so that hit me like a, a brick wall, to be quite honest. And I had the mild existential crisis going, what the hell am I going to do? Um, I'd been humming and hawing about doing an MBA, so Master's of Business Administration, which is the, if, if people aren't familiar with what that is, it's like a, it's the classic thing people do um, in America to progress their career from middle management to senior management. Um, but it's also something that a lot of career changers do. So, for example, on my course, there was people like me, there was doctors, there was accountants, there was consultants, there was actors, there was um, people from all walks of life who were looking to get into something else, but they just didn't know where they were going. They didn't they didn't know what the options were, um, they, or they didn't know what they'd be good at. Um, mm. So I said, that sounds good for me, so I'll go do one of them. And yeah, so I did that at the University of Edinburgh in Edinburgh. Edinburgh, by the way, my favorite place in the world. Absolutely love it. Um, good town. And did, yeah, awesome time. Um, can't wait to get back again, actually, as soon as, they, as, soon as travel is more open. Um, but yeah, so I went there for a year, did that. Um, and I suppose I was looking at doing consulting jobs. Uh, what in Dubai to do defense consulting? Um, basically procuring equipment for Saudi Arabia. And I was like, oh, no, that sounds like, that sounds a little too evil. I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I said, the money's good, but come You've on. You've seen the, the line, that. the line, the line <laughs> arrives. See, I draw my line. I was like, I'm not going down that road again. I'm not turning into Nicolas Cage and what was that movie where he was selling arms? Anyway, um, so yeah, so I, 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 I randomly applied to various companies, including Google, who I'm currently with. Um, literally cold calling one of the recruiters kind of going, hey, this is my background. Um, I literally don't even know where to begin applying at Google. Do you think I'd be a fit for anything? And thankfully, she um, replied to that and aligned me with the role that I'm now in. And that just worked. And it, it all just worked for me. Um, even though at the time I wasn't really seriously applying, I didn't really know what the role was. And only since I'm in it do I realize, oh, I should have really panicked more about doing those interviews. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I thought ignorance was bliss at the time, I suppose. And I've kind of landed on my feet with the role, so I was really happy with it. Um, can, but can yeah, describe... it was a... Sorry, yeah. Go on. Oh, no, I was just going to say, yeah, that, that change and that, like I was saying, that career change took two years between the work with the asset management firm doing the MBA and finally arriving at Google. That was a two-year period. And at no point during that did I feel comfortable or happy doing what I was doing at that particular moment. Um, mm. So I have so much empathy and, you know, for anyone who's changing career, it's a ballsy decision. It's scary um, because you are classically coming out of your comfort zone of what you know. Um, but then when you do get to the end of it, it's completely worth it, um, I suppose is the thing. Um, mm. And it very particularly a career change as opposed to a moving job because a you know, if you're moving job, you at least have a realm of competence that you're moving with. But with a career change, it's a you feel like the stupidest person in the room in every meeting you have, kind of thing. Um, and it's you feel the imposter syndrome and all that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it's only really in the last year, three years later, that I feel fully comfortable in doing what I'm doing at the moment. Um, so it's a it's a long it's a long road, as it were. Yeah, and uh, I had a look at your LinkedIn, and your your job on there is described as vendor. 
Uh, can you tell us what that means? What what is a vendor at Google? Is is that up to date? What's what's the story? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, so so what I'm I'm a vendor operations manager or solutions. Excuse me. Excuse By the way, me. job titles right. in Google. But no, but, but job titles in Google mean absolutely nothing. That that has you know, <laughs> it's it's one of those annoying companies where I wish they were like a normal professional services firm where they have titles like director and VP and associate. Um, in Google, I have no idea how senior someone is. I don't know who's in charge of anything. It's one of those kind of organizations, truly flat, which is great in one way um, because I, I have not once been anxious about speaking to someone because they're senior or something. You right. just speak to who you need to speak to. It's a wonderful, very different to the military in that regard. Um, so it's really refreshing. Um, but yeah, no, so my, my role essentially is um, Google makes 85% of its revenue from ads, all those annoying things you see online and YouTube videos, et cetera. Sorry, did I say annoying? I meant really valuable and insightful <laughs> um, advertising. Um, but uh, yeah, so that 85% of the revenue comes from that. So that's a, that's a lot of cash. Um, and all of that money obviously goes to fund everything that people use within Google and all the good research they're doing with the likes of um, you know, quantum computing and you know, when you look at Waze, all the rest of it. And, Google Maps and Google Earth and you name it, all the all the other products that Google have. Um, that's where that's where they are able to fund all that and all that research that goes into it. Um, so it's it's kind of justifiable in a way. That's how I justify it anyway. Um, but as part of that, um, obviously, if you're a company like Audi or Ryanair or whoever it is, you're you're coming to Google and you want to advertise using Google search optimization or YouTube videos or whatever it is. Um, you have a client manager who will of discuss um you know what your advertising needs are what your goals are what's well, what are you trying to drive do you want more people coming to your website do you want people to buy your product whatever it is um and basically they'll um they'll come in they'll do they'll, they'll organize it with their account strategist at which point that whole program gets transitioned to the teams i manage which are the um the tech we're called technical solutions and um, what that is is essentially a team of um you know website developers and software kind of engineer types who will go into the background code on people's websites and make sure everything is optimized, that the advertising and the mechanisms and metrics are all working as intended. Um, and yeah, that's essentially kind of the teams I manage all over EMEA and in Latin America at the moment. Um, and it's a global team in the bigger Scott size of things. So it's about what, five, 600 people in total. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's that's essentially what I'm doing at the moment with that. Um, right. Yeah, and uh, yeah, does that make you, sense? It does. It makes perfect sense. Uh, well, it makes uh, enough sense <laughs> being on the outside. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but uh, something I'm really curious about is you having been an officer in the military in a war zone. I would I would imagine in a corporate environment you are absolutely shit hot at your job you know i'm ju i'm just imagining somebody who's been in the military like that and how regimented that is you know mm. you are just super honest and organized and really quick to respond to emails and and all that kind of thing um and i imagine oh, yeah. that's that's what uh recruiters are you know attracted to in in people who are like ex military so do do you notice a difference between kind of your style at work versus somebody who's like a civilian to, to use the term yeah i don't know it's, it's it's an interesting one because at the start i would have said no i've nothing to offer i'm useless um because they hold the imposter syndrome type thing i was like why am i here um everyone here is far smarter and has a better cv than me what's going on um but now i'm there and i've been there a long while ago i completely understand why they hired me um if that makes sense 
Um, sometimes I think recruiters and hiring managers have a better sense of someone's potential than the person themselves. So um, I'm grateful for that, certainly. Um, but no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think one, one thing that I was very lucky with in a weird way um, was that it was a steep learning curve when I learned, when I, when I joined and it was, I, I was proper you know, suffering from anxiety and couldn't sleep and I was stressing out all the time. There was just so much to learn and get my head around and the days were long and everyone around me was these annoyingly talented, ambitious, hardworking people. So I just kind of felt like I was always on the back foot and all the rest of it. Now I'm a little older and wiser. I kind of know how to play the game a little better. I know that people are, you know, like any organization, I think people always like to seem busier than they actually are and all the rest of it. And, you know, you play the game. Um, but don't get me wrong, people in Google are the, the, the smartest people I've ever worked with. Like, I still don't understand why I'm in the building sometimes with some of the people I'm in meetings with. Um, it's really refreshing to hear how creative and kind of just proactive people are and just how people can come up with solutions to things. Um, it's it's a one that I've learned more in the last two years than I have in the, the previous 10. Like, it's, it's an incredible place to work. Um, but I suppose what I was really looking for when I joined was... Um, I joined in what September 2019, and if you recall, around February there was a uh, something happening in China that everyone was getting a bit anxious about, something to do with some sort of virus. Um, at which point, I remember being in some meeting, going, um, "Do we have any contingency plans for when you know everybody needs to go work from home? Because we work on secure servers, we work on you know protected equipment for all the you know obviously sensitive data and all the rest of it, which you can't use normal Wi-Fi networks for, and all the rest of it." Um, and everyone was like, nah, it'll never get to that stage. Don't worry about it. And of course, me being in the military, I think of the worst case scenario in every scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, so thankfully, due to my pessimistic thinking, I was able to put our plan into place. So when we did get a week's notice of having to move everything to work from home all across the world, um, you know, I was kind of leading that from the front whilst everyone else was running around with their hair on fire. I was proper wow. kind of battle captain, ops officer, so, kind of so coordinating the whole thing. You, you were leading um, that for... For all of for, Google. For, for our teams, no, no, for our kind of our teams and subsequent teams who were kind of following our lead because no one knew what to do. Um, so it was it was really really rewarding, and I kind of made a bit of a name for myself just after joining. So I was lucky that that happened. Um, but yeah, it was proper like up at two in the morning, shouting at someone on the phone in, in Brazil to kind of, no, you need to get a van and go there physically and do this and get this thing to move here. It was all that kind of stuff going on, um, <laughs> which I really enjoyed. That was like my bread and butter um so that was really really good um and yeah so and I, I remember just speaking to one of my very senior bosses at the time kind of going you know if just tell me money is no object uh, you're just putting that bluntly to them give me a blank check and we'll make this happen by tomorrow and, and mm-hmm. they were just like okay and i was like done hung up <laughs> it was done by the morning kind of thing <laughs> um so it was um yeah that was that was that was that was kind of a, a good baptism of fire but it was also it was really nice to know that while everyone else was kind of not doing great in that scenario i was able to pull through and do it kind of i was i was very justified my existence as it were um, yeah. and that kind of stayed with me then for the rest of the year i was kind of known as the guy to do that and i'm i would agree with that i think people from a military background are very comfortable when ambiguity is rife and um, because when there's ambiguity all you need is an intent and that's what people in the military love it's like what what do we want to achieve what's the intent and um, in the absence of being told what to do follow the intent and you'll be fine and my intent was very clear, keep our keep Google on online. So keep our services online. Yeah. Um, and that's what we did. So that was really reassuring. And then I suppose since then I've kind of matured a lot more into the role in terms of um 
yeah, I've got a lot more confidence in my own abilities, I suppose, now, where I can kind of confidently, you know, critique things and question things. Um, and given how much changes in Google on a monthly basis, I'm already thinking of an email I need to respond to, as I say that. Um, but yeah, things just change all the time. Um, and that was so overwhelming when I first joined because given the slow bureaucratic nature of other organizations I've been in, I wasn't used to that. Um, but yeah, I certainly learned a lot from it. Yeah, I actually had another guest on, uh, Porrick McMahon, who was in the band The Thrills, and then he worked at Google, mm. and then he since moved on. He's at a place called HubSpot now. But I asked him, I was like, mm. it, did Google actually have that thing where you could be like playing pool and stuff? And he was like, uh, not really. I mean, if you were, if it was the middle of the afternoon and your boss walked by and you were just like asleep in a, in a pod, <laughs> you know, when there was a lot of stuff to do, they'd be like, what are you doing? Um, it like, and I'm just curious about that. What's your impression of the kind of work-life balance there? Are you do you have to put in really long hours, or is it quite good in that regard? What's what's the story? I, I would describe it as grown up. Um, I think it's it's uh, and that's absolutely the way I describe it. I think it's it's the kind of organization which 100% rewards output. Um, so nobody cares if you're, you know, if you arrive at 10 a.m. and one. You know, no one cares. Literally, no one cares. Um, but what, what people value is your input, your what you deliver, um, you know, the, the value you bring to your role. That's what people value. And um, if you turn up for one hour a week and you can do that, brilliant. That's kind of that's their philosophy. Um, now, of course, in reality, it's I've never worked harder in my life. Um, I'd say that there's been more stress and anxiety in this role than there ever was in the military. Um, the military is <laughs> easy in comparison. Um, mad. so like they, you know, I'm, I'm earning my money, put it that way. Um, but I enjoy it. I enjoy, enjoy the role, but equally because it's grown up, like I can just say, like, you can, you can honestly say like, I am overwhelmed. I'm taking tomorrow off. I just need some space and going away. And everyone would just go, yeah, get that understood. Right. Um, because everyone is kind of in that same, I suppose it's the benefits of, I suppose it's the benefits of being in an organization like Google where they can kind of pick and choose very ambitious, hardworking, talented people. And it's kind of hard to get into in the first place. And therefore, when people are in there, they kind of feel obliged to work hard. It's one of those kind of organizations like many mm -hmm. others. Um, so I think that's a good or a bad thing. Um, but I think people, you know, you don't need to worry about people working hard because everyone is working hard. Um, and equally going back to that military philosophy of some days everything is on fire and other days you can snooze for 12 hours. And I think it's also a grown up organization like that. When you're busy, you're busy. When you're not, don't be busy. Don't find work for yourself to do. Right. Um, so yeah, that's I, I think absolutely. And like I've I've played quite a few games of pool and snooker. As it's a it's a very I find it's a we used to usually do this. There was a, a little gathering when we used to be in the office. Um, there was like four or five of us who sat near each other. And at around four p.m. of the evening, when kind of everyone was kind of getting their afternoon slump, um, someone would just stand up, clap their hands, and go like, you know, pool time, let's go. And then, do you know what? A quick ten minute game of pool or or a foosball is far better than a cup of coffee i was came back to the desk ready to go i was i could do another few hours after that so yeah. you know there's there's a uh, lot to be said for frequent intense breaks as it were anyway yeah. um i hinted when we when we uh, spoke on the phone a week or so ago uh, that i would want to ask you uh, about you know the the kind of controversial uh side because of um a big company like google because obviously mm. um there's plenty of people in the world who are who are concerned about how much power these huge tech companies have and mm. uh, particularly in terms of how they're using our data and so on and we spoke a little bit about it but i'd like to hear uh you know for for the benefit of the listener 
what your perspective is on that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's it's obviously a, it's a key subject, and even for myself, like I'm, I use Google products and Facebook and Microsoft and any website where you've ever typed in any information, be it your local pet shop or your you know your dentist. You know, everyone has your data. Um, and God knows where my data is at the moment, given the latest HSE. Um, <laughs> but um, I suppose the way I look at it, and this is personally my, my view, and certainly from having been inside Google and kind of looked at, you know, what actually, what, what is, when people talk about personal data, what does that mean? And, you know, what's the intent behind it? Um, everything is money driven. That's the first thing. If you follow the money, you follow the intent, as the old cliche would go. Um, and what is, what is your personal data and what is the value of it? Um, the value of it is knowing you and understanding you and understanding optimization of anything that is digital or physical. Um, we've been doing this for years with, or society has been doing this for years with, you know, market research, with surveys, with, um, you know, why does someone want to go into Brian Thomas as opposed to pennies or vice versa? Um, what's, what's the target consumer trying to do? It's all trying to understand you so we can get your money. Um, and that's, that's what advertising is. That's what marketing is. Um, that's the sinister side of not the sinister. That's the cynical, should I say, side of uh, me coming out. Um, but that's fundamentally what it is, and that's what that's the value of personal data. Um, no one's coming in to steal someone's thoughts or you know try to implant a microchip in someone's head. They probably could if it meant that you buy a second pair of shoes every month. Um, oh, but that's but that's where you know we haven't reached that level of of, uh, of, 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 of scientific achievements just yet. But that's you know that there's nothing particularly. From my perspective, I don't particularly care about it. Honestly, I don't, because what's my data been used for? My data, my data is very specifically linked to my online history, and it's been linked to what do I look at? What do I have a preference for? Where have I bought something? Did I look at a website then buy something, or did I look at it and then go into the shop and buy it? Um, so, does the advertiser even need a shop anymore? Can they do everything online because he's trying to optimize or she for their business? Um, that's what it is. Where the ethical thing comes into it and again this is very much my opinion the ethical element comes into it when you look at more the proactive nature of it um, and i suppose very as a very specific and this is the example that always gets brought out is the medical side of things um whereby consider that your phone knows how far you've walked in a day your phone knows where you've been if you're paying things via a digital card on your phone it knows you've bought seven kfc meals today and you haven't walked um, what does it mean? It means it says, oh, you're probably unhealthy. Um, and it knows from your activity online and things you're interested in. You don't have a gym membership. You don't, oh, it looks like you bought a pack of cigarettes the other day. And all of that can build up a picture of someone who is, um, you know, not particularly healthy. And the, I suppose the question of that is then, how is that information getting used? Who's looking at that information? Yeah, like insurance um, companies. Well, precisely. Um, and that's that's a really interesting realm that I honestly don't know anything more about it than the general public in that particular area but for my concern that would be that would be concerning because if that information was connected to a policy quote that i were to get as an example mm. um but then the insurer company would say well what's wrong with that it's a more valid quote and you could see the argument from both sides but the ultimate question is personal data and you having that information available to someone even though that information should have been made available on a you know a form that you should be submitting anyway. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's it's I, that's a legal philosophical debate, to be honest. But there is that's one example of many, and there are many other examples like that that are they don't sound right, and equally 
if something could come back and say, given your lifestyle choices, we know that you are likely to die plus or, plus or minus three months on this date. You know, I don't want to know that. <laughs> yeah. um, and equally, do I want my phone sending me random ads for particular drugs, which might be useful for a certain type of ailment, et cetera. Um, then I suppose the other element of it is your phone knowing, and I go back to phone all the time again, a good security tip, by the way, if you're ever on the run from the law, just don't bring any digital devices with you at all. <laughs> Very easy to find people. Thanks um, for that, Connor. Yeah, yeah top, top, <laughs> Noted. top tip. Yeah. Um, not, not, that's not a Google tip, that's a special forces tip, because they, <laughs> they can actually, people have been found because they've had a phone in their pocket. Um, yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's such an interesting one because if you look at it at a baseline level, there's nothing particularly sinister about it. The sinister element is the control. And that's, and it's you as an individual, me as an individual, having control over what's shared with other people. Um, yeah. Honestly, we live in a world where we don't have control over that because that's just not the way the internet works. It's not the way every app you've ever downloaded. It's not the way every website you've been using or random website, which isn't, you know, have a strong, you know, data security, you know, your, your data isn't encrypted enough, your, your email, your phone number and all that is, all of this is on some sort of dark web thing somewhere. Um, yeah. But I think, but it's what, what's, what the, the sinister element of it is, is understanding and predictively preempting and that influencing how your, like you said, with insurance policies and whatnot, that's the kind of the, the sinister element of it. Um, yeah. It goes back to that control element. You should be able to clearly say, no, I don't want my information used for that. Um, that exists. That exists in every setting for Facebook and Google, et cetera, but it's confusing. It's not clear. It's not mm. immediately achieved. You know, and equally, what happens to everything I've done before this point? Um, all of that is part of a larger conversation. I certainly don't know enough about it to comment on it. Um, and it's, from my perspective, when I look at personal data like that, all we're trying to do is sell an extra pair of shoes or try to put the right ad in front of the right person. Um, and I think that's that's the interesting element within it. Yeah. Well, you know, as you said, being an ex-military guy, you kind of, uh, you try to see the worst case scenario. And I suppose mm. that's what, it, and you've kind of outlined some of them there, but I suppose what a lot of people fear, and if you, if you, you know, listen to people like Ed Snowden and people like that, it's like, this is too much power. The, the the data that these people have access to is giving them too much power mm -hmm. and then who knows what somebody could do with that potentially in a worst case scenario mm -hmm. um but i'm conscious we're uh we're running on pretty long and uh to to move off that topic there's a, a couple more questions i'd like to ask you um i, I like to ask people you know when they've reached this point in their life and in the career change and everything uh when you look back like do you uh, when i speak to actors i go do you now miss acting you know, and usually they've, they've said no. And I'm wondering, is there anything about your former life or former career that you missed? Do you have days where you wish you were out in a desert um, mm. or, or are you totally comfortable that's behind you? Yeah, it's, I miss, I miss the adventure side of it. I miss that, um, I, I miss that kind of, you're going, I, I, miss, I miss being the guy at a party with an interesting story, put it that way. <laughs> like I miss being the guy that you know when you came when you were back for a weekend or something and people 
people who say, what did you do this week? Oh, I was, I had some meetings with accounts. It wasn't very exciting. Oh, what did you do this week? Oh, we were, I was on a Chinook helicopter trying to do this thing in, in Slovenia, but then this guy forgot his Jeep. So we had to get another tank and go over this place, blah, 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 blah. So I, I miss kind of having that excitement of having, you know, doing unusual things and being in unusual places and kind of just always being excited by what's happening. Although I will come to that by saying at the time, it can be an awful drag. And I have to remind myself of that quite a lot. And that's one of the reasons I left. Whilst in hindsight, it's exciting and interesting. At the time, it was an awful pain sometimes to be stuck in some random place doing something you didn't really want to be doing. Um, you know, history can have very rose-tinted dasses sometimes when you're looking back on things <laughs> and you remember the positive things. Um, but I also miss the, like I said before, the people. I absolutely loved the camaraderie. I loved, it was absolutely like a second family. Um, you know, quite literally trusting people with your lives and making great friends. And I, I absolutely love that element of it. Um, I love the shared experience, the kind of thing that I, it's, it's almost impossible to replicate for me anyway, outside of a, I mean, I, I suppose someone who might be starting a business and going through some trials or someone who's preparing for a show that they've been working on or someone who's trying to write an album or, somebody's trying to achieve a physical goal that they thought they couldn't achieve, you know, that kind of shared experience of a dramatic event. And um, that, you know, the kind of thing where, Oh, you wouldn't know you weren't there, you know, that kind mm. of a scenario. The military yeah. is full of those scenarios, like on a weekly basis. Um, I miss that. I miss that kind of um, camaraderie that's built around that shared experience. It's, it's a really, you know, it, it's, it's a really invigorating thing. And I find that outside of the military, those experiences are far and few between. Um, life is a little more run-of-the-mill and mundane. Um, like, what's the difference between this week and five weeks ago in my job? Mm -hmm. uh, literally nothing. Um, so it's that, that's what I miss, that kind of excitement through it all. And then I suppose I also, as a final point, the one thing I miss is I had no idea how much, I can't even tell you how much I earned as a, as a captain when I left. I can't remember what I was earning. Um, because I didn't care because no one joins the military for the money. Everyone's there for the experience, for the, the lifestyle, for the, you know, that, that was kind of the other element of it. Now, to be fair, you didn't spend any money because you were never anywhere long enough to spend any money. Um, but I miss that kind of element of, whereas now I'm very concerned about, you know, is this worth my time? <laughs> I'm sacrificing my life to kind of do this job. Is this, you know, what else could I be doing? That would be, yeah, how can I earn the maximum amount of money for the minimum um, you know, disruption on my personal existence. Whereas in the military, I was earning much less, but I would have spent more time at it because I love it. Um, mm. And that's some that's something I miss. And I suppose there's a lot to be. It's not that I don't enjoy my current job; I absolutely love it. But it's not the same. Um, and I would imagine that's probably similar for someone who may have gone from being a musician or an actor, or, or just going from something that you loved into something that is a little more functional and less risk and more stable. There's that element of passion that I suppose and that is lost a little bit. It's a similar thing I'd certainly see. One of my best friends is a doctor and he would have a similar opinion. You know, I think the medical field is one that certainly, maybe any like the Gardaí or anything like that would have a similar kind of opinion. It's not about the, the pay, it's the job. It's the, what's, what's the, what's the word? Vocation. That's the one. It's a vocation, not a job. Yeah. Um, I miss that. And that, that's, that's kind of, yeah, I, I think the like in terms of my next steps and something I'd love to do in the future is definitely start a business. Um, it's just that is probably the most terrifying thing in the world, at least financially. So, but that's something I would absolutely love to do. And I think if anything drives me towards doing that, it would be 
that kind of emotion that I've just described in terms of, yes, this is okay, but it's not, I'm not, you know, I'm not excited by this. Um, that, and I think that, that's something that will drive me towards something like that. Yeah, that, that is so funny to me that you would express fear at setting up a business as somebody who's like dri <laughs> driven along IED stricken roads and ha been, you know, under fire uh, that you would be afraid of starting up a business is crazy. And actually, I, w I want to just ask you th on that because uh, it's you described, you know, how your your is is comrade the right comrade the right word. I don't know how you describe me. The guy the guy in your in your uh, unit. <laughs> I don't know the terminology, uh, but the guy oh, you yeah, got yeah, yeah, the guy yeah. who got injured, and you described that yeah. like firefight. But actually, I think people might be curious. Did you actually fire a gun in anger in your time there? I I did. Um, I, I have no particularly exciting story insofar as um, like I, I haven't I haven't looked someone in the eye and shot at them, but I certainly aimed at a fella who was a, a behind the wall a couple of hundred meters away as we were all firing in that direction. That happened on a few occasions. Um, of course, we weren't able to confirm or deny there was any hits or anything, so I have no. That's the only comment I could make on that. Um, however, there is like going back to that kind of separation between things. Um, I know for a fact that um, there was about three guys part of a particular strike, which wouldn't have happened if I hadn't correctly talked on an Apache helicopter to that site and described the individuals, at which point they followed up on it. Um, so you could ask the question, who pulled the trigger really in that situation? <laughs> um, yeah. And I suppose, yeah, that's, yeah, get into another larger conversation within who owns the accountability of that? Is it the guy in the ground pulling the trigger or is it the person who put the vote into the poll box? Um, who owns the accountability for those scenarios? Um, which is a much larger philosophical debate, you could argue. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I've gone well off track there. But yeah, that, that's no, no, the exciting kind of thing, I'd say. Yeah. No, I, I just it just occurred to me, people would probably, given given your story, people would probably be like, you should have asked that. I, I would have been curious. Um, yeah. But uh, <laughs> I think we're, we're probably about out of time. But I honestly, uh, I find your story so interesting, Connor. And, and I'm glad that uh, through Dan, we have this connection. And it's not unlikely mm -hmm. that we will actually meet again. Uh, and, I, you know, I'd look forward to, to talking to you more and, and hearing yet more. Um, but in terms of this episode of the podcast, we're probably about out of time. But I think you you said like you miss being the guy at a party with an interesting story, but I can assure you, you will always be the guy at a party with an interesting story. Uh, Except this, this time it's going to be about ads. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to dip a bit further back, give them a broader range of time. Um, exactly. <laughs> But yeah, uh, thank you so much for for um, your time and for sharing your story. It's honestly uh, really fascinating and, and another great, uh, you know, just twist on on the idea of a career change. So, um, so yeah. thank you. Delighted. Oh, Delighted. Thanks for having me. Cheers. That was my interview with Connor. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have an unusual life story or know someone who does, please get in touch with me by email at patspodcastpeople at gmail.com. If you enjoy the podcast and think it's a worthwhile venture, you can support it on Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Pat's podcast. It will help me invest more time in the podcast and continue finding interesting stories. Alternatively, you could leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast or simply share it with family and friends. Any of the above will be greatly appreciated. You can find me on Twitter. It's at Pat's podcast. See you soon for another unusual life story. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.